0: Hey, it's Gary and Shannon. You're about to embark on yet another great adventure with The Gary and Shannon Show. A reminder, we want you to make sure that you look at the iHeart app and hit the follow button on The Gary and Shannon Show podcast so that you can get updates on what's going on with our podcast. Mm -hmm. Don't forget to share it as well.
1: Get it? It's adventure music.
0: Also, share it on Facebook, Twitter, wherever you have that opportunity, and tell a friend about what you're listening to when you listen to The Gary and Shannon Show. I hope the
2: president's watching. Not the Gary Hoffman. This guy is a petulant child. That's what he is. Shannon Farron.
3: Oh, girl, it's cold outside.
2: Gary and Shannon.
3: What? No. Yeah.
2: We are going to kick your rear end out of the White House
4: on this wall.
0: We go Monday. It is May twenty eighth. It is Memorial Day. Some of us uh, don't mind working on Memorial Day. Um, th- so why here- not? I mean,
1: there is no traffic. Isn't it delightful to drive to work with no traffic?
0: Yeah, top it's like down. a little treat.
1: Oh, it's top down. Yeah,
0: because I, I unlike you, am a warm-blooded creature and uh, did not complain about how cold it was today.
1: Well, uh, here's the here's the story. Uh, Gary sent out a text, because we often like to coordinate our outfits on the show. And Gary sent out a text last night saying it's... Uh, shorts Monday. Shorts Monday. And he was visibly upset when he walked into the office today and saw that I was not wearing shorts. Because I'm not part of the group now. All the other guys are in shorts.
0: Everybody else seemed to understand that...
1: Yeah. And I feel badly about that. But it was chilly. Um this morning and I was too cold to put shorts on.
0: Well, it happens, I guess. Here's what we're going to do today. Because it is Memorial Day, one of the things that we have done for the last couple of years, and it's actually worked out very well, is we have been taking your stories. Now, remember, Memorial Day is not Veterans Day. Memorial Day is remembering those who died while serving the country in the armed forces. I don't have anyone in my family who was killed while serving, but I do have a bunch of people who had served. So it's still, you know, it's still an important day. But I know that there's a lot of people who listen to this show, a lot of people listen to KFI. Maybe you don't even listen. You just happen to be flipping around and happen to hear this. We would love to be able to help you honor those people today from your family, your friends, your circle uh, who, who do fall into the category of. Those who died while serving, and there's a bunch of different ways that you can get their information to us. And you know, you can email us, you can put it on Facebook, you can you can tweet us their pictures, uh, throw it on Instagram, whatever it is. And we would love to hear those stories because there's a there's a few reasons why this is as important as it is um, in terms of the day today. And it's not it's not one of those things where you know. Uh, w- These men and women didn't die so that we have a good barbecue today. That's not that's not why Um, we are lucky to be able to take a day off of work, most people, and do stuff like that. But there's a much deeper meaning to it than whether or not you can smoke brisket for six hours today.
1: Well, and and veterans will will be the first to tell you enjoy the day, but just remember the larger the larger picture here yeah. and the fact that Memorial Day gets lost on, oh, the opening of summer and, uh, you know, um, everything uh, is on sale right. and that kind of thing. It, it does. It's kind of sick when you think about the commercialization of Memorial Day. And that was part of the message by Robert O'Neill in a letter here um, that uh Robert O'Neill, if you don't know him, is the ex-Navy SEAL best known as the man who killed Osama bin Laden. Um, He joined the Navy in 1996, deployed as a SEAL more than a dozen times. He participated in more than 400 combat missions across four different theaters of war. And the letter that he wrote to Fox News really hits home the idea that there are a lot of people who will absolutely be first in line when it comes to fighting for our freedom and fighting for our country but that doesn't mean that it's not sheer hell sheer hell and in his letter he talks about the fact that um why is there so much war why is there so much war globally so much terror why are there so many people willing to fly passenger jets into buildings and, 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 and strap bombs to themselves uh, to, why is that? And, and he said in, in the last part of his letter, I urge all Americans to join me in the hope and prayer that somehow, someday people around the world will focus more on our similarity, similarities and our differences. And that we'll move closer to a time when war is just a memory part of our past, but not our future.
0: This is a, uh, and this is a guy who. I mean, a lot of people think of Memorial Day, and you think of the, you know, the trenches in Europe, or uh, some Navy supply ship in the Pacific Ocean, or something. But this is a guy who lived the current version of what is war, and what is this country at war, and in a way that I, I even the vast majority of people in the military themselves won't understand what kind of role this guy played as a special operator. Uh, as part of uh, SEAL Team Six, but it's one of those—it's one of those admonitions that I think we all need to take to heart. And I'd seen it a couple of times over the course of the weekend, but reading through this letter uh, yesterday, kind of, kind of hit home. Don't, and he starts this letter: Don't wish me a, a happy Memorial Day which is unfortunate, I don't think the president read this letter, but he says there's nothing happy about the loss of the brave men and women of our armed forces who died in combat defending America. Memorial Day is not a celebration. So when I put this uh, you know, this tweet together, this uh, Instagram post together this morning to say have a Memorial Day, it took me a while to figure out what word, if any, I should put in there. Have a nice, have a memorable Memorial Day. I mean, none of that makes sense. So why not just have a Memorial Day where you take a couple of minutes, whatever it is, and remember the fact that because you don't have to drive in traffic today, uh, because you get to go to your buddy's house who's going to smoke ribs for four hours, because you get to hang out and watch baseball games and have a beer and relax, there are people who made that possible. And And
1: it's not because they love it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's not because I, if you read this letter, it's, uh, you know, it's it. They, like I said, they'd be first in line to fight for freedom um, and, and be that person. But there are a lot of people who who went through complete sheer hell and never forget it. Coming up next, we're going to talk about a, a World War Two battle that still keeps a hundred and two year old man named Alan who lives in Massachusetts. It still keeps him up at night's. 75 years later, right?
0: We don't understand. No. I mean, I can't wrap my head around some of this stuff. All right. Gary and Shannon, will continue on this Memorial Day. No
4: matter what we breathe, we still are made of greed. This is my kingdom come. This is my kingdom come.
1: Gary and Shannon, Aaron wrote to us on Facebook at Gary and Shannon, remembering Laura Mankey. Laura Mankey was killed January 2007 with three other sailors when their Nighthawk helicopter crashed into the Pacific during a routine training flight near San Clemente. Laura grew up in West Hills. She was a gregarious kid. 13 years in the Girl Scouts, voted Miss Popularity at Canoga Park High, joined the Navy to fulfill her dreams of flight, baked cookies for her fellow officers, very spiritual husband a lieutenant in the navy uh recalled his wife's sunny disposition not even a rainstorm could ruin the good times during their fourth of july picnic that they shared before uh before she went down there
0: if you uh if you have somebody that you would like to remember on memorial day just let us know you can send it to us at gary and shannon social media email us however you want to get it to us and we'll uh, throughout the show we'll talk about them um there was a uh, – I'm fascinated sometimes at the, the – obviously when we hear about stories of war, World War One, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam, Persian Gulf, uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, whatever it is, there are big battles that we think of. And the ones that generate headlines, whether it's because of the size of the, the offensive or the number of people who are killed, but there are smaller battles that are – forgotten a lot of times.
1: World War II's forgotten battle is the one that we're about to tell you about. The only World War II battle fought on North American soil. And this was one of the Aleutian Islands. It was one of the deadliest battles in the Pacific in terms of the percentage of troops killed. Nearly all of the Japanese forces, estimated about 2,500 soldiers, Died with only 28 survivors, 28 out of 2,500.
0: Not to mention that uh, I think there were 550 or so U.S. soldiers who were killed in the Battle of Attu. And this is on Attu Island in the Aleutian Chain up in Alaska. And the Japanese had come over in 1943. And much of the fighting, if you can think of this, we're talking Alaska, so it's not warm. Our forces were not necessarily properly prepared for it. They
1: didn't have the right uh, just simple like clothes for it. They yeah. they, they, it, they weren't ready at all. They didn't have the right weapons, the,
0: the right clothes for the conditions. And they trained here. I mean, they trained in California for desert combat. And there they find themselves in Alaska. Uh, I assume that some of the uh, some of the tactics would probably be the same. But you've got to be able to. Think straight when you're freezing your butt off out there to be able to do these tactics that you've been trained to do.
1: The guys that still remember this and everyone who's still living, if they were on in this battle on a two island, they remember it. Say much of the fighting was hand to hand. It was waged in dense fog, winds of up to 120 miles per hour. William Dover says his memory of this battle is as sharp as it was 75 years ago. He says his first sergeant rousted him from his pup tent about 2 a.m. when word came out the Japanese were attacking and had maybe even gotten behind the American front line. He was shouting, get up, get up. So William Dover and most of the American soldiers rushed to an embankment on what became known as Engineer Hill.
0: That Engineer Hill was the scene of what was this last-ditch, desperate offensive by the Japanese forces on May 29, 1943. And an, an AP report of what happened there was Japanese soldiers surprise American forces on Attu with a fanatical charge out of the mountains, savage fighting rages throughout the day and into the following night. Now, again, this is after a couple thousand Japanese soldiers had already been killed in an attempt to take Attu.
1: So there's like 200 of them left or 500 of them left. Um, and, and they they started, they started dying. And so the the Japanese soldiers who were left in the assault ended up putting grenades to their bellies and pulling the pins. Mass suicide in the name of the emperor. And then we heard more stories about this happening on other Japanese battlefields.
0: The uh, the interesting thing that has all I shouldn't say always the interesting thing that happens with American forces when we kill bad guys, we process their bodies. Yeah. And this was no this was no different. The the army buried the Japanese soldiers bodies with care. They built a memorial. They set up a grave post and paid respect to the spirits according to uh, one Japanese man whose grandfather died on Atu, And the Japanese government has been in talks, I don't know how formal they are, but they've been in talks about returning the remains of the hundreds of people, hundreds if not a couple thousand people, Japanese men who died on Atu. The Alut people who lived on the island at the time when the Japanese invaded, all there were only 45 of them, but they were all taken prisoner they were all sent to hokkaido island back in japan about half of them died there from either malnutrition or starvation and the survivors when we were when we finally liberated them from japan they never returned back to their island the army said it was going to be too expensive to rebuild any sort of the village uh, any of the village so they were just relocated after the war but the battle as as important as it was in terms of its Notification, or I should say it's, it's notability for being the only World War II battle fought on North American soil, and as absolutely grueling as the conditions were, it is an unforgettable thing for some of the people who were there. William
1: Dover, by the way, is 95 now. Yeah. And he still remembers after hearing his first sergeant screaming at him, get up, get up, that there were a couple guys slow to get up. And they both were bayoneted in their pup tents. That's how brutal and savage that that fight was, the last gasp, as you put it.
0: You mentioned that 102-year-old guy as well, a guy named Alan Serrell, Massachusetts, 102 years old. He worked in communications. He was doing uh, Morse code for the Army Signal Corps and still remembers it. And he says, I wake up in the middle. This is a 102-year-old guy. And he says, I still wake up in the middle of the night, and I can't go back to sleep. That's what this has done to me. That's how much it affected me and still does. When we come back, last week when we were up at Bravery Brewing in Lancaster, we had an opportunity to uh, sit down and talk with Jerry Angelo, an uh, actor, writer, and a director who put together a movie called Warfighter. And it's all about not just Alan, 102-year-old Alan, or 95-year-old guys who fought in World War Two. It's It's men and women who within months have come back from whatever war zone they find themselves in and deal with PTSD. So we'll talk about Jerry and his movie Warfighter when we come back.
1: Gary and Shannon, KFI AM 640.
0: Gary and Shannon, on this Memorial Day, one of the uh, things that we got to do last Thursday, when we were at Bravery Brewing in Lancaster, was talk to Jerry Angelo, writer, director, and actor in uh, a new movie called Warfighter that he put together. Uh, this is our conversation with Jerry. First of all, I know that you also had uh, you did some work on Lone Survivor, didn't you? Yeah. What was, what was up with
2: that? Did you did you work with Marcus Luttrell? Or I did, yeah. Um... What happened, I'm an actor, and, uh, and so as an actor, you don't really do extra work. You know, you just just don't do that. But I had an opportunity because I looked like one of the SEALs um, part of the team, and they said, hey, you come down for like three weeks and work with Peter Berg and Mark Wahlberg and Taylor Kitsch and Eric Bana and, you know, this incredible cast. And I was like, okay. It so, sounds like a rough job. Yeah, it was, it was pretty <laughs> cool. And we just went down to New Mexico um, and, uh, and one time on set, we're, they're doing the reenactment of the, the helicopter getting, ex, blowing up and it had this big helicopter and hydraulics in the parking lot and uh, everyone's, you know, everyone on the set is just doing the regular busy day work stuff, getting things set up and Marcus and I were off about 50 yards, just we just, you know, we're just there talking and all of a sudden he just kind of just stopped and was gazing over everything and and, you know, we're recreating the time that all his, all his guys died um, by getting hit by the missile and recreating that and there's this incredible weight that I just felt, and I was like Jesus. And I, I just uh, that was the, for the first ember of inspiration that got to me. And I was like, I want to make a movie that talks about that.
0: And that, wow. of course, is Warfighter, and that's yeah. that's the that's the
2: one that's out now. Tell
1: us about Warfighter. What's it What's it about?
2: Um, well, it's a what it beca- what it is is a it's a tribute to all our service women and men, and it brings awareness to PTSD. And it's about a an Navy SEAL. Um, who uh, suffers from nightmarish PTSD, and um, with his teammates they go to um, rescue an american p o w um, and then like a, a, a heartfelt story of of uh, family, brotherhood and sacrifice
3: wow
1: and, and when did it come out?
2: It just released um, our uh, our team is uh, doing everything ourselves just by it's a small team a grassroots um, campaign, and so it came out on april twenty seventh which was my birthday.
1: Oh, that's great! <laughs> which is
2: cool, and it's just on—it's on Amazon, and then we're also touring around the United States um, from theater to theater with different premieres. So
1: I bet you have gotten to know a lot of veterans through your work, um, back, you know, just in the films that you've done, and, and now in this film. And, and what's that like understanding um, what what veterans do go through and, and the experiences that they've had?
2: Oh gosh, um, oh, it's bone chilling, <laughs> you know. Um, when I when I first got the idea, the inclination to to come up with a story i didn't know um about ptsd really and i knew the word um so in the process of um talking to different vets of different you know from different theaters and eras um you know they were all they all had stories that were very uh very personal and some of them i mean many veterans they want to talk about their stories and they were not ready um so uh in, in the process of making this, and, and now that we're showing it with uh, you know to different veteran groups and different premieres and stuff, we always have a Q and A with uh, some of the you know the cast. But then um, it gets really personal, and so the Q and As will go for an hour or two hours, and and, and everyone gets to start to tell their stories, and it's uh, it's uh, refreshing for everyone. It's 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 very heartfelt, and it just opens up the you know the the conversation of all different areas. Did you, you base bet. Did you base Warfighter on any one in particular
0: person that you knew? Or is it uh, like an amalgamation of different stories that you'd heard? Yeah, it would be amalgamation. Whatever, <laughs> whatever that word that was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's just a bunch of different guys that you've been able to talk to and hear their stories. And this is kind
2: of putting yeah, pieces um, from each of them. Well, oh. yeah, I mean, you can have like 10 cases of PTSD and not one of them are the same. Yeah. You know, and, and how to treat them. it's a good point. And so um i i in the in the story warfighter I did a scene uh i wrote something that was just very it was almost like almost kind of like a documentary style on that particular scene you know i let it just have, take its full course didn't try to you know hollywood it and try to make it really you know just like cut it to make it work great it was just a real you know here's a here's eight minutes straight, straight of just yeah. like grasping at your heart and it takes so many twists and turns you know it's a, it's a, um the main character's waking up from a, a nightmare, and you know he doesn't know where he's at, and so his wife's telling him you know where where he's at and then she he's like, she's telling him you know who she is and he he knows who she is so you, you never know like each mission he goes on and each dream he has she has to try to find out which dream it is, which guys survived um which guys are not real you know his his make believe friends and partners and stuff like that. We're talking with Jerry Angelo, uh, the writer,
0: director, and uh, actor in Warfighter, that you can find on Amazon and a couple of different places. Now you can find the trailer also on YouTube to check it out. But you bring up something important, I think, as well, and that's the the family members of somebody who may be suffering from PTSD, and the, and the I don't know if work is the right word, but the the role that they play in
2: helping people deal with this and helping these guys deal with this yeah i mean it, you know one person you know has pdsd or has suffers from you know anything even for, from any injury you know loss of limb or anything it, it's the whole family and all the friends and uh i'm just i'm no expert at it i'm getting to learn a lot more about it as as we go but it's uh you know it's heavy it's like real it's real stuff and and there's not always outlets for everyone you know like For instance, uh, you know, with PTSD, you know, as always, you know, as the the women in the military has always affected them as well, but it, it's kind of getting more um, aware, aware now. And uh, look, one of my friends um, who did, you know, serve, she did three tours and was a vet for a combat medic for 17 years. Christine. Yes. Yes. She's like, she's actually over here.
1: Hi, welcome. (laughs) We got your message yesterday. Thank you so much.
2: Um, one of the things that she told me that I didn't know is that, you know, she, when she came back, you know, she, she suffers from PTSD, you know, the women are, are on the front lines as well. And he came back and she needed to, to get counseling. And there was a, a men's group that, um, you know, that was for PTSD, you know, as a group of them. And, but she wasn't allowed into the group because they, they were afraid that, that having a woman there, they wouldn't speak. Yeah. Um, you know, or so, or wouldn't it open up. So she had to go to a different counselor that was maybe not um, trained in, in this particular, you know, um, with PTSD. And and so he, people get lost in the cracks too. Again, the, the name of the movie is Warfighter. How can people check it out, get more information, watch it? I mean, it's yeah. all going to be very important. The, 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 since we're so small, the, the most important thing that helps us is if you go onto Amazon. Anyone who has internet can go onto Amazon. Uh, type in warfighter movie and then you can just rent it or i mean excuse me you can purchase it um if you can leave a review for us as well and then if you go to imdb and give us uh, you know the highest star ranking that you believe we deserve and uh it's it's not you know um warfighter is a a smart film it's not it's not just for your your casual audience it's made for the upper crest people that you know that can dive into a good story
0: well thank you i mean i i know that uh it, it it takes a lot to be motivated to do something like that and then to actually follow through with
2: yeah. it as well. It's probably a, a load. I can't believe it happens. <laughs> Thank well, you and thanks for joining us. Appreciate yeah.
1: it, Jerry. Sorry. You all right?
0: I hit my headphones on my hat.
1: You're a little discombobulated today.
0: <laughs> I didn't sleep much.
1: Well, we are getting some um, some great submissions here from you on, on Facebook at Gary and Shannon. We are taking your stories, uh, people that you want to remember today, and uh, we are going to be talking about them throughout the show. So hit us up on Facebook at Gary and Shannon or Twitter or email or whatever you want to do.
0: We'll sh- share some of those when we come back. Uh, we'll also get into a couple of quick terror in the sky stories. And at the top of the hour, we're going to talk with Rishi Sharma, who is uh, a 20-year-old Kid, I guess. Just for context purposes, twenty-year-old guy trying to interview World War II vets every single day before we lose him. We'll talk with Rishi about his project coming up at the top of the hour.
1: Gary and Shannon, KFI AM six forty. And gosh, these stories kept popping up over the weekend, and I thought we're gonna have quite the bouquet of terror in the sky stories, and we do.
4: Flight 209 are you are cleared for takeoff. Roger. Get off my plane. Roger, Roger. What's our vector, Victor? Enough is enough! I have had it with these monkey fighting snakes on this money to-
5: It's Gary and Shannon's Terror in the Skies on KFI.
1: The first story I saw was the man on the American flight who simply wanted more beer.
0: (laughs) And who doesn't when you're flying American?
1: He wanted more beer, Jason Felix, and he was shouting. Oh! Started shouting when an American Airlines flight attendant did not comply with his request for more beer. A passenger nearby whips out his phone, because that's what we do, (laughs) and took video of the complete tantrum. The flight attendant said to the man, "You, you need to please sit down. I'm not bringing you more beers. Please sit down. We'll be there in an hour. Why do you have this attitude? You had a couple of beers. He and Felix is standing in the aisle. He's banging on the overhead compartment. A passenger hugged him and asked him to chill. Another passenger said in a calm voice, relax. No, I'm not going to relax, he said.
0: I I know my rights. I know my rights. That's my favorite part.
1: (laughs) I know my rights. That man is going to lose his job. Do you really? really Do you have a right to beer? Is that in there? No. Is that in there?
0: I mean, America, yes, but not on an airplane.
1: I've actually had behavior like this before at an airport. Um, (laughs) It was in the South, and it was Sunday, and I was traveling for football. Before I had a job, I was no, traveling unofficial for, fu- oh, football, yeah, for fun, right. for football, fan football. And I go to the airport and they said, no, <laughs> I, I was ordering fair. a Bloody Mary or something. And they said, no, we don't serve alcohol. And I said, what? <laughs> this is America. No,
0: please that, don't tell me you said that. Out that loud. happened.
1: I couldn't believe that you couldn't order a beverage before. I think it was noon or something yeah. on a Sunday. Right. That, that, that to me seemed un-American, well, and I felt like maybe the next line out of my mouth was going to be, I know my rights.
0: <laughs> it was on the tip of your tongue. I, I couldn't well, believe you I, it. You and I both grew up in California where we don't have a lot of restrictive uh, alcohol rules. I mean, closing time is, you know, last call is 2 o'clock, and then they could start selling again at 6 o'clock. Yeah, now, I didn't I know, know anybody... there were rules. Uh, well, the first I, time
1: I was uh, I was confronted with rules is when I drove up to Seattle, right? And you go to the market, and you can't buy you can't liquor. buy Jack Daniels.
0: You got to go no. to the state controlled liquor store at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, the other one was when I went to Arizona one time. I went to buy my wife was running a marathon, and I she started the marathon, and you started a beer. To, no, I was going to go to the store, and I was going <laughs> to get a bottle of champagne as like a celebratory "Hey, you did oh, it" kind of sweet. thing. And they're like, "We can't sell it to you until noon." Yeah. What are you talking about? It's it's like 11 right now. It's a sun. What do you mean? You can't tell me until you noon? knew
3: your
1: rights. I know my rights. Here's the other story. Anyway, the got.
0: FBI came and told him what his rights really are.
1: This is a woman from Australia, and she was hauled off a Jetstar flight by the Australian Federal Police in Brisbane after hurling abuse at startled passengers and crew and beating them with her Bible. That's good stuff. She's and forty because, you
0: know, some of those like study Bibles, those things get thick. I mean Blake, you're talking a couple pounds. You, how
1: big is your Bible? It? Is it the standard good news Bible? Uh, no, my study bible, it's six pounds. How does hard it hard cover? Does it have no. a room
0: does it have room in the margins for notes? Uh it does not, and I wouldn't do that even if it oh. did. You just write, yeah, on, them, how just write on the dare you, page. Gary. What are you talking about? No, a lot of people write in the margins. I'm not a big oh. uh margin writer. <laughs> you gotta take notes in that thing. Is yours pristine? Yeah. Mine? Right. I'm not, That's I what like, I thought. I don't like annotating. It <laughs> clutters the mind.
1: Uh this woman is forty-seven years old. She began singing and chanting about twenty minutes into the flight. Watch
0: me so, walli speed. Children, children started Watch to cry. Me They're a dangerous breed. Mate. To watch me while the bees feed. Maybe... All together now, tie me kangaroo down. She's sport. a religious woman. I
1: Maybe she was singing on eagle's down. wings or something.
0: On eagle's wings, sport. On eagle's wings. <laughs> okay. And one now... bread, one cup, mate. One <laughs> no, bread, one, bread, one, one body. body. One bread, one Sorry, body. It doesn't fit. It doesn't fit the rhyme scheme. <laughs>
1: Um okay. And then there's this San Diego to Tulsa flight that was diverted to Phoenix because of what sometimes we experience here at the radio station. <laughs> Wait a
0: San Diego to Tulsa. Is that the uh I'm sorry express? That's yeah, mean I'm to sorry. both San Diego yeah. and Oklahoma. I'm, I'm City. sure Tulsa's lovely. You know what I'm gonna
1: go down that hole right now.
0: What Tulsa? <clears throat> yeah. The Tulsa Visitors Bureau? Mm-hmm. Uh the Tulsa Drillers is a baseball team, is it not? I think that's right. Um, There's
1: the Blue Whale of Catoosa, which is a fun roadside attraction, (laughs) the Tulsa Zoo, the Philbrook Museum of Art, an ornate mansion with gardens.
0: Uh, Frontier Flight 1764 left super early in the morning and landed in Phoenix about 1125. Beautiful
1: Arkansas River goes through Tulsa.
0: And it had to be diverted because of, you said, this odor that came through the plane and was then gone.
1: There's a colossal statue of an oil driller there. It's called the Golden Driller, 75 feet tall. It's the sixth tallest statue in the United States. What are the other five? What are the other five? I'm so glad you asked. Number one is in China. And that is the Spring Temple Buddha. The number two is also Buddha. Number three also Buddha. That's
0: a good. There's a lot of Buddhas on yeah, this there's list. A lot of Buddhas. Yeah. Uh, the Tulsa Drillers are the Double A affiliate of the Los Angeles Dodgers. And oh, I
1: didn't for know the that. Last few years. Yeah. Do you have a Tulsa? What are they called? The, the drillers. drillers. Yeah. Do you have a Tulsa Drillers T-shirt?
0: No, I do not. Because they're, I don't know if you heard me, they're a Dodgers affiliate.
1: The tallest statue in the United States is in Quick Gas Go Around. Because oh this God. is fun. Where do you think the tallest statue in the United States is?
0: The tallest Blake. statue in the United States. I'll, I'll go Bozeman. Bozeman. Interesting. No. Oh. Uh,
1: no. Nick. Nick, Nicholas.
0: It's not the Statue of Liberty in New York?
1: It is not. That's number two. Statue. Where in the United States is it?
0: Are you coming back to us again? No. Uh, uh, Julie. Julie. Sorry. Virginia? <laughs> Somewhere in Virginia? Virginia. That's, no. Uh, Florida. Mm-hmm.
1: No. It's in Puerto Rico.
0: That's kind of a trick question. I know. I feel like I was close with Bozeman. <laughs> what is it a statue of?
1: Birth of the New World.
0: How do you make that sense. a statue?
1: 110... Feet tall.
0: What part of the birth is it showing? No,
1: 360
0: feet. A uh, a 20 year old guy is trying to interview World War II vets every single day. We'll talk. We'll introduce you to Rishi Sharma when we come back to the Gary and Shannon show.
1: Gary and Shannon, KFI AM six forty. Well, there's a kid who developed his own project to interview as many World War II veterans as possible.
0: And Rishi Sharma joins us now. Rishi, first of all, this is a fantastic and uh, pretty amazing endeavor that you've undertaken. Can you tell me how it is you started, you got this idea to, to go around and interview some of our surviving veterans?
4: Sure, sure. So basically, uh, my name is Rishi Sharma. I just turned 20, and my mission is to meet and interview two to three World War II combat veterans every single day until the last one passes away. And ever since I was a little kid, I've always been interested in World War II. And I I would read as many books about the subject as I could get my hands on. I'd watch the television programs. And as I got older in high school, I uh, started reaching out to some of the veterans. Um, that I would read about in the books. And I would just look them up on the internet and, you know, through the online phone book. And that was such a neat feeling that here I can just pick up a phone and talk to a real life hero. Whereas if I wanted to talk to some kind of stupid celebrity, I'd have to go through a thousand people. But to talk to someone who literally helped save the world, I can just call them and to hear their own, in their own words, you know, what happened. And so I just started riding my bike. To the local retirement home, and I interviewed all the veterans there of World War II. And then I rode my bike to the next one and the next one. And uh, eventually, uh, the local paper did a story about what I was doing. And people started calling me, telling me about veterans that they knew their neighbors, their grandpa, their dad. Um, and then I started, you know, teaching class to go do interviews because I was learning more from the veterans of World War II than I was in class. And then by the time I graduated high school in June of 2016, the Associated Press was about to make a national story about my mission. And once they did that, uh, I got thousands of emails from people all across the country telling me about different heroes that they knew. And I decided, you know, I'm not going to go to college. Uh, I'm going to try to document and meet and learn from as many of these World War II veterans as possible And so uh, I just started out driving. And I've been, I mean, I've interviewed over just 870 World War II combat veterans so far. And I've been to 45 of the States and Canada. And uh, I've not been home in over two years now. I've just been on the road interviewing World War II veterans.
1: Rishi, you bring up a great point in that we spend so much time uh, focused on celebrities. And when we have this dwindling population of people that could really teach us some valuable things and it is easier to hear about history and learn history when you're being told a a real story as opposed to reading in the books and things and i just wonder how how helpful that would be if world war ii veterans were actually brought into classrooms to talk about their experiences with these kids uh, to, to have like some practical real world experience about what they went through uh, it got a lot bigger from you riding your bike to senior centers after school. And now you're, like you said, you're, you're driving all over. Hell's half faker. Uh, how are you? Uh, y- are you working? How are you putting together money to, to do this?
4: So I, I, I've been very, very blessed. So after the Associated Press did a story about my mission, CBS Sunday Morning, in a national television program about it, 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 it's through a GoFundMe, but if, if you guys don't mind, I really don't need, uh, I don't, I'm don't. i not trying to be greedy. And so I, I just don't want people to think that they have to donate because I've been so blessed that I was able to raise a great deal of funding already. And so, I mean, I, I just don't want to take more unless I needed it. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, no, I'm just curious about like where you're oh. staying and all that and oh, <laughs> how, I, how you make ends meet.
4: <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, so uh, I, the Associated Press did a story about my mission, which led to CBS Sunday morning doing a story and that, uh, I had an online fundraiser, uh, on GoFundMe and I hope I was able to raise a great deal of funding through that. But, uh, when I'm on the road, I live out of the car and I, I just, you know, by the time I get done, I do three interviews a day. So by the time I get done, like I'm the only places to open are like fast food joints. So, uh, it's very, you know, low cost what I'm doing. Um, uh, but the funding i choose from the GoFundMe, it's a nonprofit. I run a nonprofit called Heroes Over the Second World War. And so, you know, I've been given oral history grants and that kind of thing as well. And that's, it just pays for travel and food. It's not like I get a salary or anything.
0: What, uh, what does one of these interviews look like? You're able to contact uh, whoever it is that you're going to sit down with. How long does it take? What's the finished product look like?
4: Okay, awesome. So... Basically, you know, lots of people have reached out and told me about different veterans that they know of. Uh, I do a lot of research on my own on Google, you know, trying to find different veterans in different communities. And all I do is I'll find a veteran, maybe on a a local paper's website, and then I'll call them up. I'll explain who I am, what I'm doing, and then they'll agree to the interview. I'll I'll drive on over and I'll have a little bit of small talk. We'll get set up. It's just me and the camera and the veteran. And we start talking about growing up in the Great Depression then uh, how they heard about the attack on Pearl Harbor, had they got into the service. The majority of the interview is about uh, their experiences in combat, you know, what they had to see, what they had to go through, uh, sacrifices that were made. And at the very end of the interview, we talk about uh, how they want to be remembered, life advice they want to give to future generations, uh, and then after that— uh, I put the interview on a DVD, and I mail it to the veterans. The interviews belong to the veterans. I'm not trying to make a book or a movie. It's just for the veterans and their families and for their future generations. Uh, for the veterans who are more open with their interviews, I'll end up donating that uh, uh an oral history museum. And currently uh, I'm working on creating a docu-series uh, about these World War II veterans and what it's like to be able to meet and interview them And uh, to see them, you know, in their 90s and 100s, it's just – I mean, you can go up to any of these World War II veterans, and you can ask them anything about the past 100 years, and you'll get a firsthand answer as a response. You know, whether it's the Great Depression, the worst war in human history, the moon landing, the Kennedy assassination, Watergate – you know, it's amazing that they were born in a time when horse carriages were still used, and now – they're living in an age where they're self-driving cars.
1: Well, and a lot of and, things repeat themselves, you know. History repeats. And uh, there's a there's a wealth of information trapped in those minds that we need to tap into more often. Uh, Rishi, you're actually talking to a veteran right now. Who is the gentleman and, and what is his story?
4: Okay, the, the, the veteran who I uh, am with right now, do you uh, want to say hello? Yep. Hi. Right. <laughs> his name is Mr. Uh, Gerald Monsbach and he was a tanker. The 88th Cavalry Reconnaissance Squadron. And he actually received uh, the Silver Star, which is the third highest award for valor. He was a tank commander. And uh, uh, he was actually blown out of a tank and his crew was killed. But uh, he saved, he got the Silver Star for saving the lives of some of the men that were there. And he was 19 years old at the time, which is such an amazing thing to think that. You know, the 18- and the 19-year-olds were the ones that literally saved the world from tyranny and oppression. Um, I I did just want to say quickly, um, you know, if a Civil War veteran suddenly came up from the grave, all the world's media would be hounding him on their knees, begging for five minutes of his time, you know, using the nicest cameras and the fanciest equipment. And what boggles my mind is that we have this opportunity with the World War II veterans who are, you know, arguably way cooler than any Civil War veteran. (laughs) And we have the people, the know-how, the technology. I did the math. If we wanted to interview and document all the World War II veterans in the world, we could do it in 14 days. And it just, you know, by, by film interviewing them, we can keep those memories alive for future generations so that... The men who were killed overseas didn't die in vain. And and the least we can do is give their deaths some meaning. And so I really ask anyone who's listening to this, please just pick up your iPhone, pick up your phone, uh, or pick up a video camera, and just go to a retirement home and just sit down and talk to a veteran or interview your grandpa or talk to your father. Get it on camera and and do it now because, you know, if we keep putting it off and putting it off, we're going to make one of the worst mistakes in history, you know? These World War II veterans are like our generation's uh, version of the Civil War veterans, and we should we for the younger generations that won't have the honor and privilege of looking these heroes eye to eye. The least we can do is document them. And it's not just me; I can't interview all the World War II veterans. I mean, we can all do this if we work together. And I would just beg anyone to please take the time to talk to them and document it, because they took the time to fight and die for us.
0: Rishi, are you looking for more people to interview? How how does someone get a hold of you if they know that their dad or or grandpa has some great stories and would love to share them with you?
4: Thank you for asking that. Yes, I've interviewed just over 870 World War II combat veterans, but my mission is to interview World War II veterans every single day until the last one passes away. So if anyone out there knows of any World War II veteran, whether it's, whether it's your dad, your grandpa, a neighbor, or some guy you met at Walmart, please reach out. Um, the website for the organization is heroes, H-E-R-O-E-S, of the Second World War, all spelled out, dot org. So heroes of the Second World War dot org. Uh, my phone numbers are there. My email is there. Please let me know if you know any World War II combat veteran, and I'd love to get them interviewed.
1: Rishi, thank you, and give our thanks to Gerald Monsbach as well.:
4: Yeah, thank you guys for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
0: Rishi Sharman, again, you can find out all the information about Rishi's project and contact him if you know somebody that, uh, that should be interviewed. Heroes of the Second World War.org. Spell it all out.:
1: We've got some memorial day stories for you coming back, some dedications from
0: you. Gary and Shannon will continue. I don't
3: wanna know,
0: no, Gary and Shannon. It's Monday, May 28th, Memorial Day. Earlier today, Arlington National Cemetery, they did the ceremony to lay the wreath at the tomb of the Unknown. Today
5: we pause, remember the more than one million Americans who gave their last full measure so we could live in freedom and raise our children in peace. Lord, I pray that we may be more aware of just how blessed we are as a nation as we realize the price that it's paid to have and maintain our freedom.
0: General Joseph Dunford there and then the chaplain Terry Austin in today's ceremony. We've been asking people to uh, let us know who it is that you would like to remember on this Memorial Day, somebody who uh, lost their life in service to this country. And we've gotten a couple of fantastic ones.
1: Angel wrote to us on Facebook and says, my dear friend's son was lost at a very young age, gave his life for us. He was one of a set of two twins. His mother, Tracy, is an angel here on Earth. She herself has done and still does incredible missions as a nurse to save lives and help others. Um, Brandon Prescott is her, her friend's son. That was his name. He died in May 4th, 2013, and he was 24 years old. He was among five army soldiers killed in action when their vehicle was struck by an IED while on patrol in Afghanistan's Kandahar province. Um, he died four days after he re enlisted in the army and four weeks after he saved the life of a fellow soldier. He, Brandon, was one of four brothers. Listen to this two sets of twins born 18 months apart. Four brothers. They grew up in South Orange County, Dana Point, Laguna Niguel. Brandon graduated from Dana Hills High in 2006, worked as a forest firefighter, then wanted to serve his country. Uh, He spent a short time in the Army, but in that short time, noticed as a leader, received various medals and commendations, including a bronze star, a purple heart, and an Army uh, commendation of valor. Five months after being deployed to Afghanistan, he was promoted to platoon leader.
0: Uh, Bob wrote to us on Instagram and said, This Memorial Day, I'm dedicating to my dad's best friend, Ramiro Gonzalez. Upon his high school graduation, he was drafted into the Army and sent to Vietnam. As his platoon took fire, he was shot and killed by an enemy sniper. Men and women like Ramiro are the reason Americans have freedom, making the ultimate sacrifice for their country. And for that, I say thank you. I may have never known you in this life, but my dad did. And he talked about you almost every day. He loved and missed you very much. Enjoy heaven, gentlemen. And then uh, uses a couple hashtags like Army and Vietnam War.
1: Listen to this. Uh, Ellie wrote to us. Do we have time for Ellie's story? I think so. Um Ellie's dad's name was James Lawrence Ledbetter, and Ellie wrote to us, thank you so much for telling the story of the World War II battle on a two-island. My father, 22 years old at the time, fought in this battle. He never talked to his kids about it, but I overheard him telling my mother about it when I was a young child. He described hand-to-hand fighting between him and a young Japanese soldier who was about 18 years old. My dad killed him. I only saw him cry twice in his life. One of those times is when he was telling his mom about that. He suffered PTSD the rest of his life, but back then there weren't any services available. Despite the trauma of the battle, my dad served in the U.S. Navy for 33 years, Korean conflict, Vietnam War. Side note, Ellie's mother's Japanese. She and dad met in post-war Japan. She was so proud to become an American citizen.
0: Good story. Uh, Tracy wrote in and said that uh, Tracy would like to remember the classmate from Fullerton High School, class of 1960. Um, Thomas Howard Hawking was in the Marine Corps, uh, served three years, died September 16th, 1966 in South Vietnam. Um, apparently the helicopter he was in crashed over. After being shot, his body was recovered, and he's on panel 10E, line 101 of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. You've seen that, right, in in D.C.? That's one of those places where um, I I don't know what the – what do you call it? I don't know what the protocol is for approaching the World War II Memorial. I mean, outside of a normal – they do services there every once in a while. where well, they'll they'll rededicate the the wall or for Veterans Day or Memorial Day, but just on a Tuesday in January, like what do I I was always very in awe of what was very clearly a solemn somber yeah place.
1: It, it's always when I've been there. Every time I've been there, it's just been completely silent, yeah. as it should be, you know. And it's really one of those places where your breath is sucked away from you. Like yeah. there's no there uh it's like a gut check uh sherry wrote to us on facebook never met my biological father but he sent letters from europe and my mother sent photos from home sherman sutherland parachuted into france on d-day broke his leg he was sent to england to recover by december he was due to come home but instead sent to the battle of the bulge where he died on christmas eve he's buried at luxembourg my mother always got teary-eyed hearing i'll be home for christmas If only in my dreams,
0: Uh, there's a million of these stories out there. And if you would like to share your story of someone, you know, who died in service of the country, we'd love to hear it. You can send it to us uh, via email or at Gary and Shannon on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, whatever it is. And we'll continue to talk about this. Uh, uh, One of the big deals that happened last week that we were harping on for a long time was USC had not fired their president, Max Nikius Well, they tried to shove it into a Memorial Day long weekend news dearth and uh, told everyone late Friday that they were finally going to get rid of him. We'll update that story when we come back.
1: Gary and Shannon, KFI AM 640. to help the American Red Cross initiative to get prepared, California. This is going to be a good time. Monday, October 1st, here's what goes down. You and a guest will mix and mingle and tingle with the KFI crew for an exclusive evening at the beautiful OUE Sky Space in Los Angeles. We're talking cocktails, appetizers, 1,000 feet above the city in this iconic U.S. bank tower. Meet the team. We'll do some live Q&A, some photo ops. And grab Gary's bottom. Unlimited <laughs> sky slide rides. Hold on, let's, let's clarify things. Uh, you gotta be 21 or here. older to attend.
0: Uh, probably, unless you catch me by surprise, you're not allowed to uh, to to grab the toot cakes. But the key about that Q and A is that the last couple times we've done this, there are some great questions, and every single one of them has been answered. One of your Nothing has been off limits. One here. of your
1: questions could be, Gary, can I grab your toot cakes? You know, and you'll say yes. Uh, we've got limited tickets, but they are going. So if you want to go, uh, let's let's get on this. You go to uh, KFIAM640.com and search Mixer in the box there.
0: We are uh, taking your suggestions, people, that you would like to remember on this Memorial Day. If you want to send them to us on Facebook or email, Instagram, Twitter, whatever it is, we'll, uh, we'll read some more of those as we go through the show. But I wanted to update you on this story about the... Um, what happened at USC? And on Friday afternoon, after the close of business, of course, uh, Rick Caruso, who is the chair uh, and the subcommittee of the executive committee for the USC Board of Trustees, sent out an email to faculty, staff, students, and alumni and said today, President Nickius and the executive committee of the board have agreed to an orderly transition and commenced the process of selecting a new president. Now, why it took them week and a half to get through this, I don't quite understand. Although is that there's because a lot there's of cooks going, in the kitchen?
1: Is that because there is going to be a uh, financial figure settled upon for Nickias to step down? I'm sure is there, there
0: is. Be- I mean, listen, if they if they let George Tyndall this uh, this gynecologist go after 30 years of abusing students and uh, women, then yeah, yeah, Max Nickias, who didn't do anything that egregious, but who's uh, the man who was at the top when this happened, yeah, he's going to get a financial payout, and that you know. I I wouldn't go so far as to say he doesn't deserve some sort of a payout. The thing is, he should have been done with. Max Nickias should have. The Carmen Puglia Fido story, Hot Rails with Hookers, should have been the end of Max Nickias. That should have been the end of him.
1: But instead, he doubled down with his look the other way and hush-hush money behavior when it came to the story about Tyndall. The L.A. Police Department, by the way, is now investigating because, remember, Tyndall got that great payout. Uh, Even though there were complaints going back to his pelvic exams in the 90s, uh, USC finally decided to get rid of him with a chunk of money to him. And they never even reached out to the medical board. They never reached out to law enforcement because, oh, we, we don't want the black eye. You know, it's the same behavior we saw on the night that Tim Piazza died at Penn State. Oh, it's going to look bad for the university, so let's not, Let's. Not, it'll look bad for the fraternity, so let's not uh, maybe save some people here, save a life, or save these girls. It's just, it's such gross behavior. Um, but like I said, LAPD is now investigating. USC already beginning to face what is expected to be very costly litigation by several women, hundreds of women, who say that Tyndall abused them.
0: Not to. Did you say the LAPD is investigating too? Yeah. I mean, you're going to have criminal charges here as a result of all of this. And what I found interesting, I thought about this uh, when somebody sent me the letter on Friday afternoon, and I texted you uh, as soon as I saw it to say that that Max Nickius was out. I started thinking about, you know, in our time talking about whether it's Carmen Puliafito or George Tyndall or any of these other uh, these these other scenarios. That showed to us that Max Nikias needed to be kicked off the, uh, kicked out of his position as president. We haven't received one critical email message, anything from anybody who said, "Ah, oh, you guys are being too harsh on Max Nikias," or no. he didn't know. Not one. Now you and I can say the color blue is pretty, and and the email inbox is flooded with people who disagree with us, but not one. Critical email or message about this situation with USC because right. we've been calling for this guy to be ousted for, for – it's more than a year now because the Puglia Fido story came out last spring. That's – uh, it's worth noting.
1: Well, I'm just glad he's gone, and hopefully USC changes the culture because, you know, it's never just one guy, Right it was crazy on the LA times i think it was thursday or friday and they had a they had an article about him and i th- i think it was the article that we actually reported on last week where um they went to rick caruso who is one of the trustees to mm-hmm. get a quote and he said well i don't really know enough about the situation which i thought was kind
0: of uh weak uh which is
1: La- lacked testicular fortitude, right. shall I say. Well, because, you um, know,
0: there's dozens of people on that board. Yeah. If if nothing else, some of them are pissed off.
1: The accompanying picture was of Max Nickius, and he's in the robes with the tassels and the big hat. And I just thought, my God, this is the Catholic Church all over again with the pageantry <laughs> and what's hidden underneath the robes. It's all secrets.
0: I don't want to jump to any conclusions. Like
1: Gretchen's hair. What? It's, it's a it's a Mean Girls reference.
0: When we come back, uh, the mayor of Stockton, we've talked about him before, super young guy, um, but has some interesting plans for that city, including stipends for people uh, without jobs and uh, basic income, all, all of that stuff. And why it is he's thinking about these basic incomes and stipends could prevent a school shooting. Bizarre connection.
1: Gary and Shannon, KFIAM640. So
3: like Paul
1: wrote to us on Facebook at Gary and Shannon. Andrew, big Andy. William Harville, 26 years old of Long Beach, killed on the night of August 6, 2011. Andy was part of an elite special ops team executing a helicopter assault in Afghanistan. While approaching their target, their CH-47 helicopter was shot down by Taliban insurgents, killing everyone on board, including 30 Americans, most of whom were elite Navy SEALs from SEAL Team 6.
0: Sounds familiar. So we yeah. So we, um, we are remembering people. On your behalf, I mean, if you have any stories of people that you would like to remember on Memorial Day, just let us know who they are. You can email us, uh, send it to us, social media somehow, uh, and we will tell you tell their stories on the air. Um, there is a uh, the mayor of Stockton is a 27 year old guy named Michael Tubbs. Michael's a, a Stockton native, born and raised there, and then went to Stanford and. He has been making headlines for his policies on how to pull Stockton out of the trash heap. I mean, Stockton is just, Stockton was the epicenter for problems with the uh, the mortgage meltdown in 2008 and nine, and it was one of those places that had leveraged everything in an attempt to become sort of the shining light in the center of the state of California. Uh, they ended up not being able to pay for anything that they had plans for, and the, the, the Basically, the budget of the city collapsed in on itself to the point where they couldn't pay for basic police services.
1: He ran for office on this idea of stipends, giving a select group of people who live in Stockton $500 a month. They can spend it as they wish. This lasts for 18 months, a pilot program. It's called guaranteed basic income. And the thought is, is people that are given this guaranteed basic income, will then get a leg up in life and be able to end up taking care of themselves. If you're a cynical person, you're thinking, well, what if they blow it on, on whatever, you know? Um, but there is research to show that when people are given this basic income, uh, they end up doing pretty pretty well with their lives. They can turn it around. Now he's got a new idea.
0: Yeah, this one actually is uh, based on a pro- a crime reduction program in Richmond, up in the Bay Area, north of uh, Oakland. Richmond, in areas, is an absolute toilet it, when it comes to the crime rates. When it comes to opportunities for people, it's just it's a hard place to live. And this is um, in the city of Richmond. Um, they actually offer money to people not to shoot each other. And I mean, that's the basics of it. There's a lot more that goes into it because you have to be able to prove certain things about your ability to stay out of uh, the world of crime and gangs, et cetera. But that's the basics of it. Now they're saying Stockton would do that as well. They would award someone a stipend of up to $1,000 a month to people who are deemed most likely to shoot someone. The
1: program is called Advance Peace. And he says, let me be clear, Advance Peace is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. Participating in the program doesn't erase the past, but it does help these young men learn how to make better choices for their own and our community's collective future. And, oh, then let's just play a devil's advocate for a minute. Wouldn't there be uh, incentive, then, to get yourself on this list of likely shooter, an incentive to get yourself in trouble? Because, hell, the city's giving away money to people who are likely shooters.
0: 1000 bucks a month. Um. It's 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 strange in that the, my immediate reaction is why is taxpayer money going to to fund criminals? But it's not taxpayer money. Um, they are not also they're not paying for the Stockton Scholars Program. That taps a 20 million dollar grant from the California Community Foundation to try to triple the number of Stockton students who go to college. Um, when he became mayor last year. Michael said that he would send out late-night emails to his team of volunteer researchers and said, hey, we need some ideas on how to tackle poverty. And they came back with what he says was the Guaranteed Income Program, and it jogged a memory for him. He said he remembered when he was in college reading Dr. Martin Luther King's book, Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos Our Community, in which King promoted this this guaranteed income guaranteed annual income
1: it's not a novel idea i mean canada finland have both tried it oakland has a pilot program and it's got support and people who are critical of it on on both sides of the aisle Uh, but mark zuckerberg and elon musk have both pitched the idea in terms of this is where we're going to be inevitably um because of the growing income gap and the threat of massive job losses not even just a threat it's just going to happen because of automation that this may be where we're going and then where then do we get into the socialism conversation
0: yeah i mean if if Elon Musk Mark Zuckerberg are in favor of this they're they're talking about what redistribution of wealth yeah and what's what's great is if you make a if you're worth a couple billion dollars you can start having the conversation of wealth redistribution and it not really affect your lifestyle. Right. Or the next generation or the next... You guys are set up for the rest of... For, for millennia. Perhaps. but if
1: you've got a family and you live in San Francisco and you're making a hundred thousand dollars a year and you still can't afford rent for your family and they're talking about taking money away from you to help the guy who's shooting up in the uh, Civic Center Bart station, it's a little bit harder to to wrap your head around.
0: This is one of those things where it's almost as as critical as we can be because it seems like it's ripe for criticism kind of have to wait and see. I mean there will be there will be success stories here. I mean there are people who are making as an example just a round number, there are people making $30,000 a year in Stockton and not getting by. I mean still living paycheck to paycheck, unable to pay their bills and what they are saying when they call up and and you know put their names in the hopper for this program, they're saying I just need the money to pay bills. I'm not. I'm not buying shoes or I'm curious. TVs with it. I'm
1: very curious how that guaranteed basic income is going to work. But I'm not curious about giving a thousand dollars to criminals a month. I mean, that's money that could go to helping the the single mom of three who's making thirty grand. In you know why why can't we help more people like her and fewer criminals? I just don't like rewarding bad behavior in the hopes of. That being the turnaround, because of what lesson is that either a reward for bad behavior? Well,
0: and and the idea that you would get the money without any sort of requirement for work, having having money at your disposal is a good thing. It allows you to do things. It allows you to travel. I, I mean, travel is not the right word. It allows you to get around town. Yeah, um, it allows you to buy transportation or a bus ticket or whatever. It allows you to get the suit that you need for the interview to get the better job. All of those things are are good. But unless you have some sort of a requirement that says you have to have a steady job or you have to have work at least part time or something like that, you're never going to be able to guarantee that these people are going to do anything. Because if you give people stuff for free, I mean, we've seen this in third world countries. You give people donations for free without any sort of requirement or any sort of job training. They're just gonna take advantage of it it's just human nature it's just what we would all do if we were given stuff for free so I don't know it's it's for I love his idea I, I mean uh, the idea that he's got this brand new way to tackle poverty it's just gonna be one of those you gotta wait and see in terms of of how it's gonna go all right it is Memorial Day tell us uh, your Memorial Day stories if you know somebody a friend family member etc. Uh, who lost their life in service to this country. We would love to be able to mention them on the air. So you can send it to us uh, via email or on social media, at Gary and Shannon, whatever it is, and we'll get their stories out there.
1: Coming up next, everything everyone is talking about everywhere, right here on Gary and Shannon. Jerry writes to us, I would like to honor my uncle, Clark Twifford. He was born on December 7th, 1926. Quit high school before his 18th birthday in November 1944 and joined the Marines. He was killed June 6th, 1945 on Okinawa. Ironically, this was the same week that his high school class graduated.
0: There's a, a bunch going on today for Memorial Day. In fact, right now, the L.A. Memorial Coliseum Commission is holding its Memorial Day ceremony honoring fallen service members. They have the lighting of the Coliseum torch, uh, a ceremonial wreath laying as well. Uh, and then if you, if you get a chance, uh, whether it's a parade or a service somewhere at one of our national cemeteries around Southern California or any of the cemeteries where we find some of our war veterans buried, they usually have uh, events going on. So that it's not just all uh, whether or not your smoked brisket uh, falls off, falls apart in your mouth, or something silly like that.
1: Uh, A bunch of other stuff going on today as well.
0: What else? Time for what's happening?
1: Well, it looks like Elliott City, uh, excuse me, Ellicott City, Maryland, has been hit with another thousand-year flood. Flash floods yesterday sending cards floating down Main Street, and there is, I think, at least one person missing.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, it is a uh, Edison Herman, thirty-nine-year-old guy uh, from Severn, and my understanding is that he's a National Guardsman who was out there helping secure some of the areas that have been devastated by this flooding. the The, the rushing water is gone for the most part, but what's left now is just. You know, several feet of mud and silt and everything that comes through when we see something like this come through. It was just
1: two years ago that the flood there killed two people, caused millions in damages.
0: Yeah, one of the people said that this was the thousand-year flood, and it's now, you know, twice in three years. So they're going to have to change the name of the label.
1: Tropical Subtropical Storm Alberto. It is headed toward anticipated landfall sometime today on the northern Gulf Coast.
0: Not a great way to start your Memorial Day uh, celebration, I suppose. The National Hurricane Center says that uh, Alberto's maintaining its strength approaching the Panhandle, centered about 50 miles south of Panama City, Florida. Uh, I've been watching some of the reporters that have been standing out on the beaches along the Gulf Coast in Florida, and uh, they're getting blown around pretty good. This is then going to go up, looks like, through Alabama, Tennessee, Kentucky, etc., before making its way Definitely not as a tropical storm, but as a a major problem when it comes to weather issues in Indiana and Michigan as well.
1: Forecasters predict that this is going to be a very active hurricane season. Never want to hear that. Spider-Man is in the news.
0: This is is an incredible video. 22-year-old guy from Mali, an immigrant who is living in France. Climbs up four floors of an apartment building to rescue a baby. The, by the time the, the emergency services showed up in Paris, the kid had already been pulled to safety. He was basically clinging onto the edge of a balcony. Uh, the, the video shows neighbors on an adjoining balcony struggling to pull the kid back to safety the child's father was out shopping when the incident occurred. He had been taken into custody. He was due to appear in front of a judge today. But this guy, his name is uh, Mamadou Gassama, climbs up the outside of this apartment complex four four stories up to help save the child. And Mamadou. And the French government said, that's the kind of guy we want in France. And they made him immediately made him a citizen. Oh, that's cool. Very cool.
1: Well, there is a name that is making the rounds today, and it is Jason Seaman. Jason was the teacher that we told you about last week, the, the teacher, the science teacher that was able to tackle and disarm that, that shooter at Noblesville in Indiana at the middle school there, and he's talking. He's saying that his uh, quick-thinking decisions were the only acceptable actions to save his seventh-grade classroom, thanking the Indiana community for support. He says, uh, I'm not a person who's looking for attention. I want to make it clear my atta- my actions on that day in my mind were the only acceptable actions I could have done given the circumstances. I deeply care for my students and their well-being. That's why I did what I did that day. Um, there is a student, Ella Whistler, who was shot. Her family says she's in critical but stable condition. School principal says she's improving. The shooter, by the way, had asked to be dismissed from the class before returning with two guns. Before he opened fire, and then and the teacher was able able to tackle him. We're not hearing much about that shooter. Not hearing much about the the mo or anything or the motive or anything.
0: Um, we have been taking your Memorial Day dedications. I don't know if that's the right word for it, but memories. If if you know somebody who uh, lost their life in the line of service to the country, we'd love to hear your description of them and tell us their story. Uh, if nothing else, just the, even their name. It would be wonderful to hear from you. So if you want, you can email it to us. You can send it to us uh, on social media, Gary and Shannon on uh, Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, and we'll get their uh, information out there.
1: Deborah wrote to us, this Memorial Day, I'm proud of my dad, David Yeager, and my mom, Rosalie. My dad was on the USS Coos Bay, and my mom was in the Army Air Corps in Long Beach. World War II vets, both buried in Riverside. I wish they were here to share their stories.
0: Uh, what's really cool as well is pictures. If you have old pictures, uh, those are those are neat for us to see as well. Uh, and we'll retweet them or share them so that other people can check it out. Uh, we have a couple of things we're going to get to at the bottom of this hour. We're going to be talking with Janae Norman about what's been going on with this talk about the on-again, off-again, and apparently on-again talks with North Korea and why it is that South Korea is going to play an important role in this and why China might be on the sidelines but is going to be very much uh, a part of what it is that is finally decided once something is decided in the denuclearization talks about North Korea.
1: That's a tough one. There's a lot of syllables in there. It's been a long day? Yeah, I feel like no, it has not
0: been a long day. Yeah.
1: It's It's barely noon.
0: I know, but... We'll get through this together, right?
1: Gary and Shannon. KFI AM
3: 640.
1: Bob Castro to wrote to, your to us. My dad served our country in World War II in Korea. He was a paratrooper who jumped at D-Day. He fought at the Battle of the Bulge. It was lucky he came home. He was a hero. Ben Castro, U.S. Army 82nd Airborne Division, 17th Airborne Division, 1st Allied Airborne and 5th Ranger Battalion. He has passed now. May God bless him. I honor him on this Memorial Day and every day of my life.
0: Um, Very cool. At the top of uh, next hour, we are going to revisit the uh, the interview we did with Rishi Sharma, who is a 20-year-old who's trying to interview every World War II vet. Uh, and has a great project to do just that, and uh, we'll hear from from him about how he's doing it, why he's doing it. It's good Memorial Day uh, fodder for you. Well, I I have a couple questions. First of all, what is an influencer?
1: An influencer is somebody who has a lot of followers on social media.
0: Ah, so when they say something is cool, then it is cool.
1: It influences people.
0: Copy that. Second question. Yeah. Did you have bad acne? I did not. I thought you were going to say yes.
1: No. But you know what? It's never, uh, it's never, you're never really out of the woods. You can get adult acne.
0: Yeah, but it's not exactly the same. It's not
1: the same because usually by your adult years, you, you probably just don't care. You know, you kind of worked it out. You know where to get the, uh, what's that? What's that? Uh, Clearasil? Cl- Clearasil or... Proactive. Oh,
0: yeah. Proactive is another that was one. A, that
1: was a popular one.
0: Um, th- there was a woman, Haley Waite. She's an influencer.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: She's 18. She had about 15,000 Instagram followers. And she said that she was dealing with the social stigma attached to the, ac- the acne that she had all over her face. And she said, she had, I was ashamed of my acne because of the shame people would place on it. It was affecting her self-esteem. It was prompting her to go to the Walgreens makeup aisle for cover-ups. And all that did was make it worse.
1: She said she's decided to stop hiding behind cheap foundation and reveal all her blemishes to her 15,000 followers. And she realizes that that was a great thing to do because everybody started sending daily messages, sharing their own struggles, thanking her. And acne has maybe turned the corner. Uh, The New York Times put this title on it. Is acne cool now? There's a trend forecaster named Megan Collins. I want her job. A trend forecaster. That's as bad Uh, as
0: influencer. Yeah,
1: she works at Trendera in L.A. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not even making this up. Trendera. And and she says skin positivity has been brewing for a while, Mm -hmm. as far back as 2015 when the beauty influencer M. Ford of the popular My Pale Skin blog recorded a video. Anyway, she says acne acceptance has only gained traction. Uh, It's being propelled by the momentum of the body positivity movement and backlash against two things. Number one, unrealistic beauty advertising. And number two, all those photo editing apps. We're swinging the other way. We're embracing the things that we tried to hide for so long.
0: You know, what's funny is uh, I think it was uh, Kendrick Lamar uh, mm. who said uh, he's so sick and tired of this MFing Photoshop. Um, and he speaks for everybody because he is also an influencer. The issue of or the the trend of moving away from photoshopped pictures, whether it's catalogs or you know, uh, some sort of other modeling venue, getting away from altering what the body actually looks well, like in these pictures.
1: remember this morning I read the, uh, the headline that hip cleavage uh, is the new, newest trend for summer.
0: Yeah. Is uh, that what
1: it was called, hip cleavage? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Where are you looking?
1: I just got to say that I probably am ready for summer. <laughs> it used to mean something different. And now that it means hip cleavage, <laughs> bring it on. Now Let's that, go. Now
0: that it's got a a nice name. Let's go. A uh, somewhat alluring name. You want
1: a brief history of acne?
0: No. First of all, before we move past the hip cleavage yeah. too much, is it is it
1: high up on the hip? It's like... Is that what I'm looking at?
0: Or is it like the fold that goes right here? If you sit funny. Yeah,
1: it's that fold. So
0: it's right where my hip joint would be. Right, right there, and
1: then there's some folds that go on there. But
0: I have to sit awkwardly. Well, you do. Well, no, no, I mean,
1: you weren't blessed with hip cleavage, probably.
0: But if you're standing up, you're not you're not producing the cleavage. No, it's when you're, you're you gotta, sitting somewhere, you gotta, right? You sit, yeah. You sit, and then you see it, and. And that's the new thing? That's the news. And that's what
1: we're doing now. Right, it's so
0: 2018. Tell me about the history of acne. or Is it a new thing? Is acne a new thing?
1: Uh, about 40 to 50 million Americans have acne at any one time, making it the most common skin condition in the U.S.
0: You didn't have any
1: acne? Mm, I mean, maybe like a zit here and there, but it wasn't. What? Oh, I'm sorry I didn't have acne. Now there's a social stigma to not having acne. I'm just saying now it's I'm- a
0: little. Poofy.
1: well, did you have a- acne? Yes, really.
0: My the picture of me my sophomore year in high school, mm-hmm. uh, you can't see my face. Oh, covered, and I had a you know I had a nice, uh, pretty good looking forehead by then as well, which was completely pocked with uh, you know zits.
1: A doctor of dermatology said at NYU. Her name is Doris Day. Uh, was asked, why does it carry such a harmful stigma? She says the reason is a primal one. We judge each other by appearance, and the healthier you look, the more fertile you seem. So I guess you didn't look very fertile sophomore year.
0: As would be proven by my love record in high school. That's sad. Well, sorry. It's just truth.
1: There is a 63% increased risk of depression in someone with acne. Were you depressed?
0: Uh, No. I don't think it really translated like that. But the thing is when you get when you have acne, when you have zits, whether it's a mild case, I mean and I've seen some really bad ones, but in my case it was, you know, mild. I mean normal for what a teenage boy would have. I could absolutely understand it so affects I mean, we talk about this with the with Dr. Cunning and the stuff going on with your mouth. You can hide certain skin afflictions under clothing. Yeah. You cannot hide your face and you can't hide your mouth and that 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 is as important a I don't know, a sign I guess to other people, especially when you're a teenager.
1: There's this new what's called boy beat beauty trend. I don't know what that means. Um but they say that the proliferation of makeup-free selfies that's becoming more popular, along with this new boy beat beauty trend, it apparently highlights flaws like acne or freckles or dark circles or rosacea, beauty marks or whatever. And people are wanting to expose this more and more and more. The oh, real you.
0: Some of it is. I think I, it's great. Some of it is really Empowering, I think, is maybe the right word. I mean, if you see somebody who can get a modeling job uh, who has rosacea or uh, vitiligo or freckles, uh, freckles, it does strange to me because I love freckles. I think they're yeah, fantastic. I do too. Meghan Markle has freckles. Yeah. Uh, if you've seen Solo, a Star Wars story, there's one of the characters in there that has freckles that was, I mean, it's just a striking thing for a lot of people. Um, but this skin positivity movement, I think, is a—it's just a matter of just like everything else is becoming more and more positive. You can be 5, 10, 20 pounds overweight and still be a beautiful person, or you could be fifty pounds over. I mean, all that stuff. But do
1: you think that we should be holding up uh, hip cleavage as? Uh...
0: It's not a bad. It, the thing is, it's a natural thing. Yeah. It's a, a whole lot more common to find hip cleavage on the beach I just don't the think we should, the pendulum and,
1: should swing so far the other way to where, you know, we're uh, um, celebrating bad habits that could cause you health problems, i.e. obesity.
0: Um, I don't think there will be a time where cardiovascular stress is necessarily considered a beauty mark. But I can understand why size may be something that you can celebrate embrace not celebrate how about embrace
1: embrace okay
0: coming back hip cleavage actual important stuff going on in the world we'll try to figure out what is the latest with a potential meeting between president uh president trump and chairman kim chairman kim coming up in just a few minutes
1: gary and shannon hip cleavage (laughs) i can't stop saying it
0: i know
5: Drain the swamp. We're going to drain the swamp of Washington. We're going to have fun doing it. We're all doing it together.
0: Swamp Watch. Gary and Shannon on this Monday. It's May 28th, Memorial Day. We're going to talk more about some of the. Memories that you have of friends, family members, et cetera, who have died in service to the country. If you have some that you'd like us to mention, definitely get them to us on social media at Gary and Shannon or email us and we will uh, read some of them on the air. But we turn to what's going on around the world.
1: Looks like there are new signs that there will be a summit between the United States and North Korea, that it might take place after all
0: janae norman is joining us from washington to talk more about this what's uh, what's the latest information that we have that would point us to a yes there is a meeting scheduled for june 12th
6: well it's kind of a, a double blitz uh incredibly urgent effort right now uh, to try to get uh, a summit meeting between kim jong-un and president trump ideally by june 12th that date that was already set before the president late last week canceled that summit Um, So U.S. officials working both in the DMZ um, as well as in Singapore trying to lay the groundwork to get, you know, that train back on track.
1: I'm assuming that these talks will continue until this meeting happens. Um, You know, I I said last week, I think that we're going to have a a little bit even of um, skepticism even the day before, even if all the, all the, the plans are in motion, just because... These two parties seem to be so volatile with with their uh, agreement to meet.
6: Absolutely. And and especially uh, in light of what happened late last week with the president calling off the June 12th summit. And, and it was after then that we find out, um, you know, U.S. officials saying like, hey, we were trying to keep up the talks and we were essentially stood up by North Korean officials. Of course, it was after President Trump um, announced that he was canceling the plans, that then, um, you know, it, it kind of made you scratch your head that both sides are still saying, no, we want to meet. Yes,
3: let's meet. Let's
6: do this. Um, so it leaves you wondering why why couldn't they just have just kept everything moving along. Um, but I think it will create a lot of skepticism from now until uh, June 12th, if that's the date that they're able to work with.
0: There was uh, uh, one headline I saw that South Korea may be trying to angle its way into these talks. They were already going to be a major player in what was discussed, but will they actually get a seat at the table in these talks?
6: That's something we'll have to see. And, uh, you know, it it is important to note that South Korea is very much involved in this in terms of denuclearizing the Korean Peninsula, uh, President Trump's main goal. That is... That means, would mean a lot for the South Koreans. But also the South Korean president was here in D.C. Uh, last week, just days before the president uh, called off that summit. And, you know, it seemed like talks had kind of fallen through the cracks. Um, and it kind of left some wondering, did the South Korean president kind of overstate what he knew um, in terms of, of helping these talks come along. Um, so it, it, it will be interesting to see if if he is there um, and how much South Koreans are involved since they do stand to benefit quite a bit.
0: All right. Janae, thank you so much. Thank you. Janae Norman there with the latest on what's going on with this uh, discussion about whether or not we're going to see a meeting on June 12th between President Trump and uh, Chairman Kim Jong-un and it's of North just Korea.
1: One of those things where... <laughs> It's just it's going to be up until that day. You know, the, the speculation game is just going to go on and on and on.
0: Yeah. And it's I, I I agree with you to a point about, you know, there may be even uh, what do you call it? There may be some doubt even as of June 12th about or June 11th about whether or not the meeting is actually going to take place on June 12th. Um, but there's a lot that's going to go into that. I mean, you've got the president, the the president of the United States doesn't travel on, uh, on a hair trigger. I mean, the only time that uh, they kind of made up when the president was going to be traveling around was, uh, was during the September 11th attacks when they kind of put Air Force One in the air and just left it up there for a long time until he went to Nebraska, I think it was, or North Dakota and made his way back to Washington, D.C.,
1: President Trump got in a little trouble over the weekend when he uh, seemed to be blaming Democrats for separating families at the border. Um, This is something that's been really pissing off the president, because right after he was elected, the numbers were pretty good. There was a sharp drop in illegal migration in the months right after he won in November 2016. But recently, there's been an uptick in the numbers of people trying to cross the border, and it's driving him crazy. He has berated uh, several people in his, in his cabinet about this. And over the weekend, he tweets something to the effect of uh, the Democrats should change this horrible law that mandated separating children from parents entering the country illegally. Um, now, there's no law specifically requiring the government to separate kids from their families. It's just a law that says, you know, the parents are going to be detained and children are not going to be in the jail, so they've got to go with Department of Health and Human Services or whatever it is. Um, but to to put that on the shoulders of Democrats was <laughs> little, uh, uh, well inside the spin zone.
0: Well, it's I think what the the whole point of it was that. Democrats are the ones that are holding up a vote on whether or not we're going to have some sort of fix. I don't know if that's the right word. Some sort of change to the uh, to the DACA policies and what it is what is what it is that's going to happen with dreamers. The other thing that was going on in the context of this, that the president was getting blasted for. Have you seen this picture? This is now there's a picture that was tweeted out and it says this is happening right now. And it's a picture inside. Warehouse style um, building with chain link fences uh, almost looks like a dog kennel. And there's two kids laying face down on like camping mats. And it was supposedly slamming immigration and customs enforcement for this cage environment that they were separating children, putting putting them into cages to keep them away from their parents after they had crossed the border illegally. John Favreau, among other things, speechwriter for the president, Ragosa, candidate for governor, Uh, the New York Times uh, Magazine's editor-in-chief, Jake Silverstein, all of them blasted the president for this policy that does this. Here's the problem. That picture was taken four years ago. That picture was not under this current administration, and it does not represent what's been going on. So... They got it completely wrong.
1: Ivanka Trump got a lot of hell over the weekend. She posted a picture Sunday morning. She's kind of cuddling with her her little son, toddler. And, you know, she says, my love, hashtag Sunday morning. And then everybody freaking lost it. You know, Patton Oswalt was one of them saying, isn't it just the best to snuggle with your little one knowing exactly where they are safe in your arms? It's the best, the best. Right, Ivanka? Right, Because, of course, there are people that are being forcibly separated from their children at the border. Uh, Sessions over the weekend responded and said, listen, we're not forcing these people to try to cross the border illegally with their kids. We're not making them go there.
0: And why isn't there an understanding that we
1: every place? It's not a great government policy to separate parents from their little kids, you know, very young babies two, four years old. It's 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 not a great policy. There's a better way to do it. No, it's not our fault completely, but it's a really bad look. A really bad look. Well and, and I don't know if that and I don't know if the message that you will be separated from your children is reaching people, you know, in, in Mexico or Central America. I don't know if that message is getting out.
0: No, but when it does, I mean, that then accomplishes what it is that they've been trying to do, which yeah. is preventing people from coming. Uh, we'll continue with Swamp Watch, get some more stuff going on and what's going on in Washington, D.C. with the Gary and Shannon show. I'm thinking life's
5: too short, it's passing by. So if I'm going to go it all, go
1: Gary and Shannon, Tanya sent us a newspaper clipping from 1944. And here's the headline. Clifton community man, a casualty in the American invasion of France. Second Clifton community boy loses his life on the battlefields of France in defense of his country. And it starts off with... um, Monday morning, August 7th, Mrs. Floyd Hansen, Mr. and Mrs. C.W. Hansen received a telegram from the War Department conveying the sad news that their husband and son, Floyd W. Hansen, had been killed in action on the battlefields of France, July 8th, 1944, less than two weeks after he had landed in that country with the American Expeditionary
0: Forces. Wow, well, and that's... Uh... Tanya's great uncle Floyd, the
1: second <clears throat> casualty to be reported from the community within the past ten days, and his death brings a feeling of sorrow to the entire community, where he was well known and equally well liked and respected. Twenty nine years old,
0: and you think about twenty nine is is um, is old almost when you think about a lot of these war casualties from World War One and World's War World Wars One and Two. Yeah. Uh, Vietnam as well. I mean, we'd had a, a couple who had written in and said that their brothers or uncles or, or you know, father's friends were 19 years old.
1: He joined the army in April 1941, eight months before the attack on Pearl Harbor. Lloyd was one of the well-liked and respected young men of his community, popular with young and old, and his memory will live long as one who gave his life for his country
0: uh the one of the sad parts about this is the idea of some of these people if you're a veteran and you remember some of the people that you uh that you were with is that there is a lot of times very little time literally very little time for you to mourn the loss of of a friend or a brother who's right there next to you uh I'm in the middle of a book called Bounty Hunter Three Four uh, Jason Delgado is the writer, and he talks about having been in the early days of the invasion of Iraq in 2003 uh, losing a, a member of a Marine sniper squad that he had trained with, that he had been with for years, and it, there was not a time for you to stop and, and mourn the loss of your brother— You had a job to do, and, I mean, that's what they train these guys to do is to just, regardless of what's going on around them, complete the job, complete the task at hand. And then, you know, and in that context, he was saying that they went for uh, several weeks without any any break in terms of moving from Kuwait all the way up into Baghdad and finally getting an opportunity when there was some downtime to – kind of sit around and just remember the fact that their brother Mark was was mowed down in the first few hours of the invasion.
1: That point to me was driven home so successfully for me more than um, than other war movies that I remember in Saving Private Ryan. Yeah. Of that, um, there's no time to mourn your brother that you just lost right next to you just right there. You know, and you got to keep going. It's just it's one of those lessons over and over and over and over. That you're hit with, that they were hit with.
0: Uh, there was a story as well, and I wanted to relay this. So I think next hour, I'll. I'll if you if you didn't hear Monique Marvez talking about her experience working uh, for the Department of Defense, doing comedy at different outposts around the world, uh, you know, for American soldiers, she she painted one picture that I heard on Saturday night, which was, which was a perfect way to familiarize people with the actual on-the-ground experiences of people who are serving in in remote areas of this world trying to stay in contact with their loved ones. I'll I'll explain that. She did a great job of it, and I won't do uh, her justice, but you can listen to her show podcast and she'll explain it.
1: Well, just one last uh, Swamp Watch uh, note here. President Trump has selected Robert Wilkie to lead the Department of Veterans Affairs. And veterans groups love this pick. They see this guy as a stable, uh, safe move because, remember, there was that failed nomination of the former White House physician, Ronnie Jackson, who seemed like a nice guy, a guy you want to have a beer with, but, you know, policy, administrative experience. Uh, This man, Robert Wilkie, does. He's currently serving as acting VA secretary. He's a Washington insider. Years of administrative experience. Previously worked on Capitol Hill as well as in the Pentagon for two presidents, uh, Republicans like him, Democrats like him veterans like him so this seems to be good news all around
0: i hope so considering that there have been what is it five five va secretaries in the last six years or six in the last five years whatever it is yeah and that's just and of all the people who deserve to have some amount of of strength and stability it's going to be the veterans who uh, need the services that they've been getting so um when we come back at the top of the hour we're going to be hearing from rishi sharma 20 year old guy who has taken it upon himself to interview World War II vets. He wants to interview one World War II vet every single day. Uh, And he's got some amazing stories about the project, about where it came from, how he's been doing it, how he's been trying to put this into practice, and how it is that you can help him out as well. We'll introduce you to Rishi when we come back.
1: Shannon, on this Memorial Day 2018, May 28th, we talked with a, a kid, and it's, it's hard to call him a kid because he is um, accomplishing so much right now, but his goal is to interview as many World War II veterans as possible.
0: And Rishi Sharma joins us now. Rishi, first of all, this is a fantastic and uh, pretty amazing endeavor that you've undertaken. Can you tell me how it is? You started, you got this idea to, to go around and interview some of our surviving veterans.
4: Sure, sure. So basically, uh, my name's Rishi Sharma. I just turned 20, and my mission is to meet and interview two to three World War II combat veterans every single day until the last one passes away. And ever since I was a little kid, I've always been interested in World War II. And I, uh, I would read as many books about the subject as I could get my hands on. I'd watch the television programs. And as I got older in high school, I uh, started reaching out to some of the veterans um, that I would read about in the books. And I would just look them up on the Internet and, you know, through the online phone book. And that was such a neat feeling that here I can just pick up a phone and talk to a real-life hero, whereas if I wanted to talk to some kind of stupid celebrity, I'd have to go through a 1,000 people. But to talk to someone who literally helped save the world, I can just call them and to hear their own in their own words, you know, what happened. And so I just started riding my bike to the local retirement home and I interviewed all the veterans there of World War II, and then I rode my bike to the next one and the next one, and uh, eventually uh, the local paper did a story about what I was doing. And people started calling me, telling me about veterans that they knew, their neighbors, their grandpa, their dad. Um, and then I started, you know, getting class to go do interviews because I was learning more from the veterans of World War II than I was in class. And then by the time I graduated high school in June of 2016, the Associated Press was about to make a national story about my mission. And once they did that, uh, I got thousands of emails from people all across the country telling me about different heroes that they knew. And I decided, you know, I'm not going to go to college. Uh, I'm going to Try to document and meet and learn from as many of these World War II veterans as possible. And so uh, I just started out driving. And I've been, I mean, I've interviewed over just 870 World War II combat veterans so far, and I've been to 45 of the States and Canada. And uh, I've not been home in over two years now. I've just been on the road interviewing World War II veterans.
1: Rishi, you bring up a great point in that we spend so much time uh, focused on celebrities. And when we have this dwindling population of people that could really teach us some valuable things and it is easier to hear about history and learn history when you're being told a a real story as opposed to reading in the books and things and i just wonder how how helpful that would be if world war ii veterans were actually brought into classrooms to talk about their experiences with these kids uh, to, to have like some practical real world experience about what they went through uh, it got a lot bigger from you riding your bike to senior centers after school. And now you're, like you said, you're, you're driving all over. Hell's half faker. Uh, how are you? Uh, y- are you working? How are you putting together money to, to do this?
4: So I, I, I've been very, very blessed. So uh, after the Associated Press did a story about my mission, CBS Sunday Morning, in a national television program about it, uh, it, it it's through a GoFundMe. But if, if you guys don't mind, I really don't need uh, – I don't, I'm not trying to be greedy, and so I, I just don't want people to think that they have to donate because I've been so blessed that I was able to raise a great deal of funding already. And so, I mean, I, I just don't want to take more unless I needed it. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, no, I'm just curious about, like, where you're oh. staying and all that and <laughs> how, oh, I, how you make ends meet.
4: <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. So uh, the Associated Press did a story about my mission, which led to CBS Sunday Morning doing a story. And that uh, I had an online fundraiser uh, on GoFundMe, and so I hope I was able to raise a great deal of funding through that. But uh, when I'm on the road, I live out of the car, and I, I just you know by the time I get down I do three interviews a day. So by the time I get done, like the only places to open are like fast food joints. So uh, it's very you know low cost what I'm doing. Um, uh, the funding I choose from the GoFundMe, it's a nonprofit. I run a nonprofit called Heroes Over the Second World War. And so, you know, I've been given oral history grants and that kind of thing as well. And that's, it just pays for travel and food. It's not like I get a salary or anything.
0: What uh, What does one of these interviews look like? You're able to contact uh, whoever it is that you're going to sit down with. How long does it take? What's the finished product look
4: like? Okay, awesome. So. Basically, you know, lots of people have reached out and told me about different veterans that they know of. Uh, I do a lot of research on my own on Google, you know, trying to find different veterans in different communities. And all I do is I'll find a veteran, maybe on a a local paper's website, and then I'll call them up. I'll explain who I am, what I'm doing, and then they'll agree to the interview. I'll I'll drive on over, and I'll have a little bit of small talk. We'll get set up. It's just me and the camera and the veteran. And we start talking about growing up in the Great Depression and uh, how they heard about the attack on Pearl Harbor, Had they got into the service. The majority of the interview is about uh, their experiences in combat, you know, what they had to see, what they had to go through, uh, sacrifices that were made. And at the very end of the interview, we talk about uh, how they want to be remembered, life advice they want to give to future generations, uh, and then after that... Uh, I put the interview on a DVD, and I mail it to the veterans. The interviews belong to the veterans. I'm not trying to make a book or a movie. It's just for the veterans and their families and for their future generations. Uh, For the veterans who are more open with their interviews, I'll end up donating that uh, uh, an oral history museum. And currently uh, I'm working on creating a docu-series uh, about these World War II veterans and what it's like to be able to meet and interview them. And uh, to see them, you know, in their 90s and 100s, it's just, uh, I mean, you can go up to any of these World War II veterans and you can ask them anything about the past 100 years and you'll get a firsthand answer as a response. You know, whether it's the Great Depression, the worst war in human history, the moon landing, the Kennedy assassination, Watergate, you know, it's amazing that they were born in a time when horse carriages were still used and now... They're living in an age where they're self-driving cars.
1: Well, and a lot of and, things repeat themselves, you know. History repeats, and uh, there's, a, there's a wealth of information trapped in those minds that we need to tap into more often. Uh, Rishi, you're actually talking to a veteran right now. Who is the gentleman, and and what is
4: his story? Okay, the, the, the veteran who I uh, am with right now, do uh, want to say hello? Yep. All right. <laughs> his name is Mr. Uh, Gerald Monsbach and he was a tanker, the 88th Cavalry Reconnaissance Squadron, and he actually received uh, the Silver Star, which is the third highest award for valor. He was a tank commander, and uh, uh, he was actually blown out of a tank, and his crew was killed, but uh, he saved, he got the Silver Star for saving the lives of some of the men that were there, and he was 19 years old at the time, which is such an amazing thing to think that. You know, the 18- and the 19-year-olds were the ones that literally saved the world from tyranny and oppression. Um, I I did just want to say quickly, um, you know, if a Civil War veteran suddenly came up from the grave, all the world's media would be hounding him on their knees, begging for five minutes of his time, you know, using the nicest cameras and the fanciest equipment. And what boggles my mind is that we have this opportunity with the World War II veterans who are, you know, arguably way cooler than any Civil War veteran. (laughs) And we have the people, the know-how, the technology. I did the math. If we wanted to interview and document all the World War II veterans in the world, we could do it in 14 days. And it just, you know, by, by film interviewing them, we can keep those memories alive for future generations so that... The men who were killed overseas didn't die in vain. And and the least we can do is give their deaths some meaning. And so I really ask anyone who's listening to this, please just pick up your iPhone, pick up your phone, uh, or pick up a video camera, and just go to a retirement home and just sit down and talk to a veteran or interview your grandpa or talk to your father. Get it on camera and, and do it now because, you know, if we keep putting it off and putting it off, we're, we're going to make one of the worst mistakes in history, you know? These World War II veterans are like our generation's uh, version of the Civil War veterans, and we should we for the younger generations that won't have the honor and privilege of looking these heroes eye to eye. The least we can do is document them. And it's not just me; I can't interview all the World War II veterans. I mean, we can all do this if we work together. And I would just beg anyone to please take the time to talk to them and document it because they took the time to fight and die for us.
0: Rishi, are you looking for more people to interview? How how does someone get a hold of you if they know that their dad or or grandpa has some great stories and would love to share them with you?
4: Thank you for asking that. Yes, I've interviewed just over 870 World War II combat veterans, but my mission is to interview World War II veterans every single day until the last one passes away. So if anyone out there knows of any World War II veteran, whether it's, whether it's your dad, your grandpa, a neighbor, or some guy you met at Walmart, please reach out. Um, the website for the organization is Heroes, H-E-R-O-E-S, of the Second World War, all spelled out, .org. So Heroes of the Second World War, .org. Uh, my phone numbers are there. My email is there. Please let me know if you know any World War II combat veterans. I'd love to get them interviewed.
1: Rishi, thank you, and give our thanks to Gerald Monsbach as well.
4: Yeah, thank you guys for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
0: And again, heroesofthesecondworldwar.org.org, That's how you're going to find out information about Rishi's project and how you might be able to get information to him about somebody who you think should be interviewed. heroesofthesecondworldwar.org. When we come back, we're going to read through some of the memorials that people have sent us today. Uh, about their family members or friends who uh, might have been lost in service to this country. We'll talk about that. We have some other interesting stuff about the USS Arizona Memorial and even Arlington Cemetery that's uh, potentially running out of
4: room.
1: Gary and Shannon, KFIM
4: 640.
0: Gary and Shannon, it's Memorial Day. We have been uh, reading your stories, people you know who have served in the military and ended up paying the price for our freedom. Bob says, my dad served our country in World War II, and Korea as a paratrooper, jumped at D-Day, fought at the Battle of Bulge. I was lucky he came home. He was a hero. Ben Castro, U.S. Army uh, 82nd Airborne Division, 17th Airborne Division, 1st Allied Airborne and 5th Ranger Battalion. Uh, And he says, I honor him on this Memorial Day and every day of my life. That's just one of the many stories that we've got. Another one, uh, Stephen wrote in on Facebook and said, my friend David Waters died in a bridge bombing in Iraq at the age of 19 on October 14th in Baghdad, 2004. He is loved and remembered by me and all my close friends. Um, We'll have a bunch of these to go through. I wanted to to, um, retell, and I'm not stealing her story because it's her story, but Monique Marvez on Saturday night was telling – That when she used to do comedy for USO tours, she'd visit different bases, Korea, Japan, etc., and do stand-up comedy for, uh, for American troops that were stationed overseas. And she talked about the conditions under which these men and women were living and working outside of the United States. And it brought to mind the... I kind of say it tongue-in-cheek every once in a while, but, like, what what did I do at work today? Yeah. You know, I mean, my, I'm not digging ditches, and I'm doing nothing close to what these men and women are doing overseas to make sure that, that we live free here. And the story that she told was, you know, long before there was social media, before there was Skype, before there was satellite phones or anything like that, the way people would keep in touch with their loved ones and families back at home was – by going to the PX, by buying a, a phone card that would give you a certain amount of minutes, whatever it was, for an international phone call, 10, 15, 30, whatever it was. And they would go into a room that was a bank of phones. And, you know, very little, if any, privacy between the phones. Maybe it looked like uh, she actually described it, and this is the image that came to my mind, was the the phones in a prison where it's just a very basic setup, small dividers to keep your business away from the person who's next to you. And you're calling home, maybe eight, 12, 15 hours difference. So you got to time it right. So you're not waking anybody up. And she said, the most telling thing about it was that there were times when people would just be on the phone and there would be silence. Not because there was. There wasn't anything to say or there was a lack of conversation, but it was just to know that there was a connection between you and whoever the loved one was that you left at home, whether it was a wife or a kid or a a mom or dad or sister, whatever it was, that just to be on that phone at the same time, there didn't have to be a conversation necessarily. You just wanted to have the connection. And silence was one of the ways that you could do that. As long as you were sharing that silence, it was the thing. And no one ever wanted to end their conversation. No one ever wanted to, okay, well, I, you know, I got to get back to work. So, right. and they would just literally stay on the line until the minutes ran out on their phone call and the thing would automatically click off. Wow. I had a phone call one time from a cousin of mine who was in um, a basic training in the army. And he was at Fort Sill in Oklahoma and it was December. And I distinctly remember him describing standing in line. This is December in Oklahoma is not a pleasant place. Like it's dry and windy and about four degrees. And he stood in line with 20 or 30 other guys for a payphone to call people. And. That's how important the connection is. Well, and he and I weren't really close. I mean, I, I, I like him. It just, I was surprised that he would call me, and I said, "Hey, uh, were you? You know, well, I, I called mom and dad, and they weren't home. But I, so because I, I just wanted to talk to somebody, and I've got a few minutes, and I've got the coins. You know, I've got the money to drop into this payphone. So I just thought I'd call and say hi, and just for that connection. You know, it's yeah. just a it. But it makes you think, and that's again, that was before the days of cell phones, and you couldn't necessarily keep in touch with your computer, that sort of thing, um but that there were plenty of ways then even that people were crying out for that sort of a connection
1: coming up next, it looks like access to the u s s Arizona Memorial will remain closed indefinitely they've got some damage that looks more serious than they thought, also Arlington nearing capacity, according to the New York Times. Talk about what that means when we come back.
0: Gary and Shannon, we'll continue. Remember, make sure that you get in your Memorial Day stories that you want us to know about. If it was somebody in your family or friend who served uh, and what they did and their story, we'd love to hear it. At Gary and Shannon on social media, you can email us as well.
1: do gasima the real life spider-man in france who climbed five uh, four stories to rescue a four-year-old boy who was hanging onto a balcony railing not only did they give him french citizenship but they gave him a medal and a job as a fireman
0: <laughs> yeah that's cool and yeah, cool that video is really crazy I mean, yeah he climbed up the outside of that apartment building um, some of the uh, stories that we have received today uh, have been really great. Uh, people who have been writing in about uh, members of their families or a circle of friends who had served in the military and lost their lives. And that's what we do on Memorial Day. For example, um, somebody wrote in on Instagram, my cousin Robert Betts lost his life in service in Vietnam with the U.S. Army. Died February tenth, 1965, just 19 years old. God bless all our military veterans today and always. Um, baseball Jay-Z, my uncle... Frank Nemeth, KIA at Iwo Jima, 1945, United States Marine. I still take my 93-year-old mom to his grave every Memorial Day.
1: Kathy wrote to us, my dad, John Callen, was a Purple Heart recipient, fought with the 736th Field Artillery Battalion in World War II, fought in the Battle of Normandy, the Battle of the Bulge with Patton's Army. Such a humble man, never talked about his service, but she read in his journal, which she found only after he was Suffering with Alzheimer's, he spent his 21st birthday in a frozen foxhole in Germany and feared that he would be shipped off to the Pacific just days before the peace talks with Japan began.
0: My grandfather was in a uh, supply ship in World War II uh, and talked about having left, um, I think it was Oakland where he shipped out from and made his way across the Pacific towards the Philippines and just sickness. Everybody was seasick. Everybody was sick the entire time, and however long it takes to get from Oakland to the Philippines, just everybody barfing up a storm. Yeah. Um, The USS Arizona Memorial is going to be closed for an unknown period of time. They found some damage that was much more significant than they originally anticipated. In fact, boat transportation to the site was suspended a couple of weeks ago because one one of the boat operators noticed a crack, in the supporting structure for the visitor loading ramp. And if if I'm not mistaken, I've never been there, but having seen pictures of it, it's out in the middle of the harbor, and you have to go to a boat. You have to take a boat to get out there. It
1: is chilling and um, a must-do uh, when it reopens. The memorial, of course, the final resting place, Of 1,102 of the 1,177 sailors and Marines killed on the USS Arizona battleship during that surprise attack by the Japanese, December 7th, 41. Of course, the opening salvo in our involvement in World War II.
0: They're saying that if you do have tickets and you're headed out there, I mean, as part of a vacation or whatever you're doing, they will allow you to go out there, I mean, there, you, you watch a documentary, you go through a narrated harbor tour, but you don't actually get off of your boat and get on to what effectively is the uh, the memorial there. Um, so that the Pearl Harbor Visitor Center, like the free museums, etc., are still open. All of that is still there and still available. But it's just specifically the Arizona Memorial that's been closed.
1: The New York Times reports that Arlington is getting close to capacity and may have to deny burial rights to many living veterans. Uh, the cemetery... Final resting place for more than 420,000 veterans and relatives adds about 7,000 more a year. And at such a rate, they say the cemetery will be full in 25 years. The Army runs the cemetery, wants to keep admitting new people for at least another 150 years. Um, But the cemetery is surrounded by highways, developments, and so the expansion is just not feasible. So they're trying to figure out what the rules for admission will have to be to tighten those rules. Um, According to the Times, the Army is considering a policy that would only allow veterans killed in action or those awarded the Medal of Honor, the highest decoration, of course, for acts of valor to be buried there. Um, They're saying if that's the case, Arlington would bury fewer people in a year than it currently does in a week.
0: They add 7,000 more people annually at Arlington National Cemetery. And if, if that, that rate continues, it would be full in 25 years. The Army has been talking about expansion, but I guess there's been some controversy about, about it. There are some wooded areas that are bordering portions of Arlington that could potentially be used. Uh, but there was a bunch of controversy about the, who specifically owns the land, about the use permits, about all of that sort of thing. So I don't, I don't know if that's going to happen. Um I didn't realize that – well, today we saw the Tomb of the Unknowns, the laying of the wreath at the Tomb of the Unknowns, which they do every year and have done since uh, – boy, I think <laughs> since since Eisenhower. Um, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier of the Vietnam War, the remains were interred in 1984 when Reagan was president, and then they were disinterred under Clinton in 1998 because they had been identified – as those of an Air Force First Lieutenant Michael Blasey And his family then took possession of the uh, the remains, and they were reinterred near their home in St. Louis, Missouri. So they decided that at from this point, well, from that point forward, the crypt at the Tomb of the Unknowns that contained the remains of a Vietnam unknown will just remain empty in perpetuity. So uh, we have a... Some other stuff that was going on, I wanted to make sure that we get to uh, revisit this story about the letter from Rob O'Neill. Rob O'Neill is the Navy SEAL who is credited with shooting and killing Osama bin Laden in that SEAL Team 6 raid way back in Abbottabad seven years ago. Now,
1: The first line of his letter is, don't wish me a happy Memorial Day. There's there's not happiness that goes along with your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your comrades uh, losing their life in a war. Um, And he questions why there is so much war. And yes, he did several different tours, hundreds of missions, but yet wondered through those. Why does all this need to exist?
0: We'll talk about that when we come back. Gary and Shannon will continue just a moment on this Memorial Day. It's Monday, May
3: 28th.
1: Gary and Shannon, Brian Suits is in for John and Ken today, so he'll be along coming up in just moments.
0: Kathy Ann wrote in on Facebook, "Hey, great show. My dad, John Callan, was a Purple Heart recipient. Uh, fought with the 736th Field Artillery Battalion in World War II. Fought in the Battle of Normandy, Battle of the Bulge, with Patton's Army. Very humble. Never talked about his service, but I read his journal. That was the you mentioned the uh, the frozen foxhole story, and that was just." Bringing it home in terms of what was going on. I also wanted to mention Jerry Angelo, the guy that we talked to earlier today, uh, his movie Warfighter. You can check it out on Amazon and leave good reviews if you'd want to. Um, Steve
1: wrote to us, my dad made it back from Yankee Station, but some of his squadron mates didn't. Some of the older kids in the neighborhood went away and never came back. I will never forget. That's the way it was put. um, And I'm I'm not sure which book I was reading, but that similar line like that hits you. kids in the neighborhood that you grew up with went away and never came back because that's what it was it was you're playing in the neighborhood right and then all of a sudden in the next couple years oh you're old enough to go and then you go
0: and and I think that's hard for us to wrap our heads around you know when we grew up this wasn't a thing you know we grew up in a time of relative peace although the cold war was sort of hanging over our heads but we didn't have people enrolled. We first of all, we didn't have people drafted. Well, I thing.
1: I remember my parents being terrified during the before, right, right around the full, first Gulf War because my brother was in high school and didn't get great grades and they were worried, you know, because you'd see it on the on the evening news is the draft going to come back? And I just remember them being terrified of that.
0: Yeah, I remember driving around in a car with uh, my friend Doug which is a great high schooler's name. Um, but remembering the discussions that he and I would have about, so what if they did reinstitute the draft? Cause I turned 18 three weeks before the invasion, um, the, the original Persian yeah. Gulf war. And I, I remember thinking, well, what, I don't even know what I would do. Do I get to go in and say, Hey, I think I'd be good at this. Or do they tell me what to do? Yeah. And just remember that very odd discussion that we had. Um, Rob O'Neill is a uh, former Navy SEAL uh, who is credited with having been the guy who pulled the trigger, shot, and killed Osama bin Laden during that raid in May of 2011. And his story is pretty interesting. I mean, outside of the fact that he was a Navy SEAL and was involved in 400 different missions, uh, including the Captain Phillips Saving, I guess you could say, at the Mariscal Alabama hijacking. He also was in Operation Red Wings when he went in and saved uh, Marcus Luttrell and a few other SEALs. There were 16 years that this guy spent in the Navy. And he's gotten a lot of publicity lately, not just because of the book and of the Osama bin Laden story. Uh, you see him on TV quite a bit and you see him giving speeches. He wrote a letter that was actually published on Saturday. That was very uh, a very poignant take on what Memorial Day is. And the first line of his letter is, don't wish me a happy Memorial Day. There is nothing happy about the loss of the brave men and women of our armed forces who died in combat defending America. Memorial Day is not a celebration. Memorial Day is a time for reflection, pause, remembrance, and thanksgiving for patriots who gave up their own lives to protect the lives and freedom for all of us, including the freedom of generations long gone, generations yet unborn. We owe the fallen a debt so enormous that it can never be repaid. Memorial Day is a time to honor the lives of those who would rather die than take a knee when our national anthem is played, but they will fight and die for the rights of those who do kneel. This holiday is a time to think of young lives cut short, of wives and husbands turned into widows and widowers, of children growing up without a father or mother, of parents burying their children. Memorial Day is a time to think of might-have-beens that never were, of brave Americans who put their country before themselves. Without these heroes, America would not be America. Unfortunately for many Americans... This solemn holiday might as well be called Summer Day, making marking the unofficial start of the season of barbecues, days at the beach, time spent on baseball fields and golf courses, hiking and enjoying the great outdoors. All those things are great. We all appreciate them. And they are some of the best things in life. But Memorial Day is not Summer Day. Nor was the holiday created as a way to promote sales of cars, furniture, or clothes.
1: I like at the end how he says... I've been on more than 400 Army combat missions, have seen more war than most Americans, more than I care to remember, but cannot forget. There's never a shortage of war. War spreads faster than fire, and like fire, it leaves destruction in its wake. It hurts my heart as an American every time I see another service member's body being brought home draped in an American flag. But it hurts my heart as a human being with every act of war we are all unleashing against each other around the world. He says, I urge all Americans to join me in the hope and prayer that somehow, someday, people around the world will focus more on our similarities and our differences. And that we can move closer to a time when war is just a memory, part of our past, but not our future. Wouldn't that be nice?
2: You know,
1: wouldn't it be nice if you could uh, solve differences without war?
0: Sure. Uh, That doesn't happen with humans, though.
1: it doesn't. And then uh, Fox News went ahead and misspelled Osama bin Laden's name there in the... Uh,
0: <laughs> How did they write it? Osama. They do that. That's, I don't, for some I've reason never seen that spelling. anywhere else. Nowhere else. None. <laughs> but, but that's their thing. Um, there was a, another great story. Um, Ellie thanked us. We talked earlier about the battle on Attu Island. If you remember, that was the uh, Aleutian Island um, up in Alaska that was really the only World War II battle that was fought on this uh, North American soil. And Ellie said, my father, an American soldier, 22-year-olds at the time, uh, fought in the Battle of Attu Island. He never talked to his kids about it, but I overheard telling my mother about it when I was a young child. He described the hand-to-hand fighting between him and a young Japanese soldier who was about 18 years old, and my dad had killed him. I only saw him cry cry twice in his life, once after he fell off a 30-foot cliff onto a rocky beach in Okinawa while holding my toddler brother. My dad was unharmed because dad landed on his back with my brother on his chest. The other time was when he told my mom about killing the Japanese soldier. He suffered PTSD the rest of his life, but back then there weren't any services available and he self-medicated with alcohol. Despite the trauma of this battle, my dad served in the Navy for 33 years that's amazing. He served in the Korean conflict and the Vietnam War. Yeah. As a side note, my mother was Japanese. She had met my dad post-war Japan, also proud to become an American citizen. So unfortunately, she never taught us to speak Japanese. So James Lawrence Ledbetter was his name. There's, and the thing is, there's, there's, there's
1: so many of those battles and there's so many of those, those just terrible hell days that that our troops have gone through that you you know you they're not the big ones you know and, and so you don't know about them all the time but those those days stick forever in, in the memories i mean we were talking about guys that are 95 102 and they still um, have night terrors they have still have nightmares from from that day 75 years ago when they're doing hand to hand combat with uh, with the japanese who are trying to make a last ditch effort to to hold on to that Aleutian Island.
0: And then how many stories have we heard also of, you know, outside of the victory of World War II when ticker tape parade was, you know, the the best way to celebrate people coming back and victory – uh, you see something like the Korean War where that same recognition eh, didn't really strike a, the right chord. And then after Vietnam, people came back and were spit on. Well,
1: and that's why when we were talking to the American Legion writers in Lancaster at Bravery Brewing, it, w- it was so special and moving because they those were the guys, Vietnam era guys, that when they came home, they didn't get any recognition. And like you said, in t- it was worse than recognition. It was bad recognition. They were thought of. Uh, in a terrible way and they and a lot of them didn't even make the choice to go and and so now those guys make it a point to welcome everybody back home you know they they take their motorcycles and the flags and everything to let them know hey welcome home and thank you and honor
0: yeah and never again are we going to try to you know welcome people back home with you know taunts and and heckling as they get off their airplanes
1: brian suits joins us now brian suits is in for john and ken today how are you
0: hi there donnie and debbie downer uh the uh the only veteran on staff and you get to work on memorial day yeah uh, it's
5: part hell? of iHeartMedia's media's commitment to veteran employment <laughs> oh man you know that's why this is my 10th anniversary for filling in for john and ken on memorial day and you know what is, november 11th is
0: that's the day you got my 11th fired.
5: anniversary of filling in for john and ken <laughs> No, that's that that's the date from 2007 when our former mutual a hole boss fired me on on Veterans Day up in Seattle. Oh. Yeah, so that that ha- i warned him. I said you you can, well, you can, wait, you can wait till Monday. Maybe he was. And he Canadian. said no, we better do it now. Okay, and so we did.
1: Who is that?
5: Uh, you don't DK. Know. You don't know him. Okay. Yeah. DK.
1: <laughs> I get it. I see you. I no, see I mean,
5: what really, you did those there. really are his initials. Oh,
0: yeah. Was, <laughs> apropos, yeah. Oh, well, what are you going to do today?
5: Oh, wacky stories! Uh, we have uh, balloon animals, uh, magician <laughs> coming in. No, I'll tell. I've got. I've got a couple interesting stories. A thing, something. Something. My dad was an Okinawa veteran, World War II, <clears throat> and I've got a, a really, uh, really interesting story about him. Um, and then a, a a close friend of mine from my artillery school in Oklahoma, at Fort Sill. Uh, uh, I read his name uh, in 2005 in Baghdad. The, on the K, on the daily kia list right i thought he died in 2004 years later he's alive in ohio what with a pool so uh oh my god yeah nice pool, a guy too, he has right? an unusual name and somebody coincidentally someone with his identical name died in iraq while he was there as well and i saw the name without rank or hometown i i thought who else could it be and he was one of the guys who went in my permanent You know, know, so that happened, List. And then years later, a mutual friend said, What are you talking about? And I went, No, Mandy croaked back in 04. And he said, No, he didn't. He's back in, he's like, No. And he has a pool. Yeah. So anyway, (laughs) it's an interesting story. I might bother him. I might.